The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. She's beautiful, classy, and she's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. She's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring and takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista is available. She's ready for love and ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one carat round, brilliant cut diamond is only 31.98. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus free shipping and 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only or go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista ready for love engagement ring. Steven Singer jewelers, real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven Singer.com. Hey, Hey, it's Conrad Thompson. And you're listening to 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing extremely well. A little bit of a Thanksgiving hangover. Me and Mrs. B for the first time in 37 or 38 years, whatever it's been since we've been together. This is the first time we've ever spent Thanksgiving away from any family. So it was a new experience. And yours truly, however, although I adjusted emotionally and mentally to the fact that we wouldn't be with family. And, and, you know, it's, it's a big deal, but it's not a big deal. You know, in, in light of everything else that's going on, grateful that my family's healthy. Everything else is kind of secondary after that. But I could not keep myself from cooking a massive Thanksgiving dinner. And <laughs> um, we prepared Thanksgiving did 24 pound turkey. Wow. For two people. Um, Lori made her homemade dressing. We did everything we normally do for two people. So we're going to invite friends over over the next two weeks <laughs> for leftovers, but I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to entertain, enlighten and eviscerate those that deserve it. So I'm, I'm anxious to do this show. Well, I'm excited about it too. Of course, we're talking about TNA final resolution 2010. Uh, believe it or not today, I believe is the, uh, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary. So I guess this weekend will be the 10th anniversary of this show. Eric, it feels like 2010 was like two years ago. It doesn't feel like it was 10 years ago. Is that going to get worse or, or better as I get older? It does get worse because here's what, here's what happens. I just had a conversation with, with one of our family members over at Ed Free on a Zoom call over the past weekend. Here's what happens. I finally figured it out. You know, when you're 10 years old, one year represents a tenth of your life. Mm-hmm. So it seems like forever. You know, the, dis- the the time between one holiday, of, for example, if it's Christmas or Hanukkah, whatever your holiday is, and the next one seems like a lifetime when you're 10 years old. It's even worse when you're six or eight years old, right? But let's just work on 10. It's one-tenth of your life. At my age, it's one-sixty-fifth of my life, which means time compresses as you get older. And what used to seem like a long time between holidays and birthdays and things like that are now just brief moments in time. 
So yeah, it does keep going by faster. And to your point, 2010 seems like five minutes ago to me. Well, this one went down, as we said, December 5th, it's at the impact zone in Orlando, Florida, usual audience, roughly 1100 fans there. It's the seventh event under the final resolution title. And it's TNA's last pay-per-view event of the year. You know, historically speaking, I guess bound for glory is probably the biggest TNA show. It's their version of WrestleMania final resolution. Is there another show you could compare that to from a WCW or ECW or WWF standpoint? No. And I don't want to be negative here, you know, but I, I watched the show, um, this morning as I always do. I like them to be fresh in my mind. So I usually get up super early in the morning and, and watch them. I don't like to watch them a day or two ahead of time because sometimes I just forget. Um, and things don't stand out as clearly to me. But one of the, the notes I made is that this was a superb television show and a very adequate, but in my eyes, mediocre pay-per-view. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being critical. It, Like we said last time we covered a TNA event, it just doesn't feel special. And this one was right there. I mean, great matches, all that, but they're just... And the buildup, the anticipation, the lack thereof, lack of surprises, great action. Don't get me wrong. I think they got one out of five in the Sarsa formula. They were able to check one box out of five, but it was a solid show, but it just didn't feel special. Talk to me about fortune fortunes on the, the cover of the poster here. Of course, this is Flair's new, uh, suited and booted group. We've got James storm. We've got Bobby Roode. We've got AJ Styles. We've got Frankie Kazarian. These guys aren't wearing traditional wrestling gear. They're wearing, you know, sport coats and slacks. It feels reminiscent of the four horsemen. Like that's sort of the TNA solution for that. Was that always the plan? And, and who was so high on the idea that maybe flair could lead a new style horseman group? I think there was a combination of, of people that were supportive of that move. I was one of them, by the way. Um, and it wasn't so much, with, with all due respect to the Four Horsemen, it really wasn't so much about creating a TNA version of the Four Horsemen as much as it was creating a faction, because factions were working back then, and apparently they're still working now to one degree or another. But the, the the idea of them dressing up and kind of taking on the flair persona, mm-hmm. you know, flair is always, you know, dressed well. He's always worn a suit. Well, not always, but for the most part, he's always dressed like a, a, a Hollywood actor, you know, um, and that's a, probably not even a good comparison. Always wore a suit and tie, expensive suits and ties, expensive jewelry, limousines, jets, all that. So I think the idea was for for Ric Flair to kind of embrace this group and have them emulate a lot of Ric Flair's tried and true formulas. But, you know, Flair was certainly excited about it. I was supportive of it. Um, Hulk was very excited about it. Dixie, of course, loved the idea because everybody else loved the idea. Not not a criticism, but she was she was supportive because she felt the group between Hogan and, and Flair, if they're excited about something, I think most people who are objective, especially if they don't have a lot of experience in the business, which just Dixie didn't have, um, was very supportive of it. You know, I think Hulk and I felt 
rightly or wrongly, that AJ is fantastic as he was, and he was. There was no question about it. Everybody, you know, myself and Hulk and certainly Rick recognized what a special athlete and performer he was. But we collectively felt that AJ was lacking in character. He was doing that, you know, homegrown, which homegrown talent, you know, TNA thing for a long time. And he just wasn't emerging. He wasn't growing as a character, in our opinion. Now, a lot of people disagree with that, and that's fine. And, and they may be correct. Perhaps this move with Flair wasn't the right move for AJ. I'm not defending it or criticizing it, but I'm explaining why we did it. We felt like here's this guy with AJ with so much potential that if he could elevate his character, if he could kind of take it to the next level, that he'd be even more special. And this was collectively our attempt to do that. How do you think he did? He he did okay. I think in looking back at AJ and and AJ and I are pretty close now. I mean, we don't chat because I don't really chat with anybody other than you. Um, and, and occasionally one or two other people, uh, in my family and friends. But, <clears throat> you know, when I was working in WWE last year, AJ and I had an opportunity to share the locker room for a while. And we chatted for a long time, right after I first got there and, you know, everybody's perspective of the situation and each other certainly changed and evolved. And I think AJ was, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think AJ looked back at this effort from a different perspective than he did then. He didn't really like it then. AJ didn't feel like it was the right character for him. It didn't feel natural to him. And one of the reasons that <clears throat> I was supportive of it, as I was pushing AJ outside of his comfort zone with the Claire angle, which was probably more my idea than anybody else's, for better or worse, but the reason I liked it for AJ especially is because it forced him to think outside of himself. It forced him to become a character as opposed to playing himself. And that's probably the best way to say it, Conrad. So much of what AJ had been doing up until that point as a character, not as a performer, as a character, he was really playing himself. And that's not that hard to do. <laughs> and it was working fine, not criticizing it. But in order to grow, you have to try new things and get comfortable with new things and develop a range in your character so that you can fit into storylines and play different roles and, and utilize all the physical skills that you have and talents and God-given talents and, and things that you've worked hard on. That's great but you have to be able to also play different types of characters in order to fit in different types of storylines. So I was excited about AJ, you know, being challenged by taking on this character and, and being a part of immortal, excuse me, um, Flair's group. Um, because I really just wanted him to expand his character and, and expand his comfort zone. Well, we're trying some new stuff here. That's for sure. Believe it or not, we got a lot of questions about the poster for this event on social media. Who would have been, you know, helpful in designing things like that for the company in this era? You Mike Weber. 
almost exclusively. I'm sure Dixie would have approved it and things like that, but it would have been Mike Mike Weber and his team. This is going to feature nine matches. Final resolution 2010. We've got a first blood match. We've got a casket match. We've got a false count anywhere match. We've got no DQ matches. We've also got full metal mayhem, which is TNA's version of a TLC match. And knowing what I know about your uh, relationship with gimmick matches, you had to fucking hate this. I didn't hate it as much as I was frustrated with it for just lack of thought. You know, when you have that many gimmick matches, especially when there's no real story going into them, I should be careful how I say that because there was some story going into a couple of them. You know, the RVD, you know, Rhino match had a great story. Um, There was enough story going on that it didn't bother me quite as much, but it dilutes all of them. You know, when you've got five gimmick matches, you know, when you have one gimmick match, it stands out. It's special. People anticipate it. It's easier to promote because it is special. And, and it's only, you know, requiring singular focus for that type of match. So you can build anticipation <clears throat> much more easily from a promotional perspective when you have one gimmick match. When you have five of them, they just delude each other. And I don't want to get too far ahead of, you know, analyzing the different ones, but there was one in particular with the Motor City Machine Guns and the Young Bucks that I just, they did a great job. They worked their asses off. What they did was phenomenal, but the match was so bizarre we'll get into it in a little bit, but it, I think it took them down three notches and it was unnecessary. They're trying to do something, you know, they're, you know, a ladder match. It's like, well, WWE does, does them. So we have to do them. Mm. No, you really don't. And especially when they're going to be compared to WWE ladder matches, which traditionally are pretty freaking awesome. So I, I just think it was bad creative. It was bad. It was lack of vision. It wasn't even a bad vision. It was, there was no vision. It was, let's just slap some matches together and create some gimmick matches and everybody will be excited. And no, they weren't. Man, Christmas is going to be here before you know it. And unfortunately that's going to be extra stress this year with lots of added expenses. Of course you got to do your holiday shopping, but there's probably going to be some travel involved. Uh, it's just been a tough year, but I want to make this the best Christmas ever. And listen, you may have tried to do this in the past, but what you wound up with was a big credit card bill and a new year's resolution to get out of debt and actually start saving money. Why do we wait until next year to do that? Here's a pro tip for you. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. Go to SaveWithConrad.com right now. We're going to show you how to skip your single biggest bill for the next two months. If you haven't already, you don't have to make your November or your December payment. You're done until next year. And next year, of course, you're going to start the new year with no, you hear me? No credit card debt. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners get rid of all their credit card debt, but take advantage of these great rates while we've still got them. You can pay your house off faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments, but maybe best of all, get the cash you need just in time for the holidays. Don't start 2021 off on the wrong foot. 
where you feel like you're digging yourself out of a hole. Historically, most American families dig themselves into credit card debt that it takes months to dig out of, all from Christmas shopping. Don't do that. There's a better way. Skip your next two house payments, get a better interest rate, lower your monthly payments, and get rid of your credit card debt just like that at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this? Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Let's talk about some news and notes as we head into this. Curtis Iakea, one of pro wrestling's biggest stars of the 60s and 70s, a fixture in the culture of uh, Honolulu for more than, I don't know, half a century, passed away on December 4th. Uh, he was 73 years old. He's one of the biggest stars in the history of Hawaii. Uh, probably one of the biggest international stars in the sixties and seventies, a huge guy for his time. Uh, he was probably regarded as one of the best promo guys of the sixties and seventies and his reputation got his jobs, got him jobs as a manager. He was the wizard in the WWF managing Kamala and, uh, Sika later the master in WCW. He was sort of the head of the dungeon of doom. And uh, he was suffering, uh, with some serious deteriorating health. Uh, probably even when you knew him, he was starting to go downhill a little bit and he passes away here at 73. I only want to bring this up because I don't know when we'll talk about him again. It's not like we'll probably ever do a full show on him, I, but I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with him just based on the average age of our listener from the whole dungeon of doom run. So you got to spend some time with him. What can you tell us about him? I'll tell you a story. You know, it was my first impression because I had never met him. I never met, um, I never met him before this. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember, I'm reaching to my memory now to recall the year might've been the end of 97 or so or 98, one or the other, doesn't matter. But I was going to Hawaii and I brought Kevin Sullivan with me. Um, we were going to do some booking. I was meeting um, the Japanese office, uh, Masa Saido and Mr. Baisho and a couple others uh, because we were planning for the following year. And rather than me flying to Japan or them flying all the way to the U.S., what did we do? We said, wait a minute, let's meet in Hawaii because that would be more fun for everybody. And I brought um, Kevin along because I wanted – him to be a part of the the creative discussions or at least it wasn't so much creative dis discussions as it was <clears throat> strategic what when we were going to bring japanese over who we were going to bring over what americans we were going to bring over to japan when they were going to be available more logistical things than anything else but some creative and it was just a good excuse you know kevin and i were pretty tight at the time so i brought kevin over and i'll never forget we landed in honolulu and I'm walking through the airport with, it was myself, and my wife, Mrs. B and, and, and Kevin. And all of a sudden I hear from down below, we must've been up higher. I can't remember how the, the layout was, but I, I seem to recall we were like a floor above and from what sounded like 300 yards away, <laughs> I hear, Son, what in there? I mean, just this big bellowing, and it's something you just won't don't expect to hear in an airport, right? right? And then Kevin breaks out and goes, 
in his Boston accent. Father! Father! Govern my son! <laughs> Father! And the whole airport's looking at us like, what the hell is going on? And then I, you know, everybody finally got together. And, you know, I hung out with them for a little a little while. Kevin and he decided, you know, they spent a lot more time together than, than I did. I was busy entertaining Masa Saido and his wife, Michi, and, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Bajo. So we all had our own things going on. But I got to spend a little time with him. Very fascinating guy. Fascinating guy. What a great story. Um, father! Where are you, Father! Uh, in, in, in a voice only Kevin Sullivan can do. Let's talk about uh, some moving and shaking across the pond. Uh, it's in the Observer. TNA Wrestling is scheduled to move to one of the Sky channels in the UK, which is interesting since WWE and Sky have always been exclusive, and it wasn't even easy for UFC to get on Sky. Details of what channel and what time slot have not yet been announced. A lot to unpack here. We've talked a lot about how Dixie realized, hey, wait a minute. There's money in them, their hills, and that entire country is just wrestling obsessed. And it's no surprise that there's a lot of TNA fans there, but getting on sky after that long, well-established relationship with Vince McMahon's outfit feels like a bit of a coup. It must have, I certainly wasn't involved in any of the discussions. Um, so I, I don't know how the, how, how the deal came to be and, and, and what the dynamics were, but I do know that, you know, when it went down, Dixie was thrilled as he should have been because, and again, I, having not been involved in the deal, the details, uh, I don't think I ever knew them. So it's not a matter of forgetting them. I just didn't know them. But if, if my recollection serves me correctly at this point, WWF was on a pay version of Sky. If there is such a thing, I'm pretty sure there is. And TNA was able to get on the free version. Mm. <clears throat> so actually the viewership for TNA exceeded that of WWE for a while. Maybe not in 2010, but by 2011. Just because, you know, more people had access to it. So it, it really was a big deal. I mean, it made a big difference. We could go over to the UK and draw houses and charge ticket prices that we couldn't get away with here in the United States. Let me clarify. Are you saying potential viewership just based on the footprint and, and you know, the penetration, so to speak, or are we saying actual more viewership, more people were watching TNA than WWE? You know, don't, don't quote me on this, but I'm fairly certain it was both. It was a bigger footprint, and because it was free, more people watched it. Yeah, there you go. Maybe, maybe not in 2010, but at least by 2011 and 2012, I think I'm pretty sure that was the case. Somebody who's listening that knows more than I do, perhaps Mike Weber, whomever, um, knows better than I. <clears throat> those people that were involved in it, but I'm pretty sure there was a lot of back slapping and self-congratulatory cocktails and things like that going on whenever the ratings would come in from the UK. Well, that's a big deal. Let's, it uh, is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, listen, if you can get a win over WWE when they've had this, you know, stronghold for decades in, in any category, any metric, it looks like you're beating them. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. And the only reason I, I, you know, recall, 
some of the conversations that I had with Dixie is because Dixie got so excited about it. It's like all of her thought process was, well, let's book for the UK. Mm. You know, everything she wanted to do on domestic, you know, because it was the domestic television show that they would just ship over to the UK. It wasn't like we were shooting a separate show, really. Um, <clears throat> a lot of her ideas and creative suggestions all were centered around what's good for the UK audience. And I understand that. And you have to do that to a degree. But Dixie had a tendency to want to go a little overboard. And, and I had to remind her, and I was really a consultant at that point with, with this kind of a conversation. I, you know, I didn't get the vote. Nobody asked me to vote. Every once in a while, someone would ask me my opinion on something like this, and I would give it. And one of the things I counseled Dixie on is be careful that you don't start producing a UK show that doesn't quite ring the bell for your domestic audience. Because, by the way, that's Spike TV, and they're the ones paying the freight. Mm-hmm. It's nice to be able to go over to the UK and draw some nice houses and things like that, but they're not they're not paying the freight. You're getting a little bit of money from them from from a licensing deal, but it's a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what you're getting from Spike. They're your they're your partner. You know, they're the master you need to serve first and everybody else needs to get in line. And that caused a little bit of an issue between Dixie and I. Gentlemen, start your boners. It's BlueChew.com. They're still with us. They're still sponsoring 83 weeks all these years later. And you know, you want to know why? It's not because Eric introduced them to the wrestling world here on 83 weeks. It's not because they just love our hilarious ad reads. It's because you guys know that BlueChew really works. Wrestling fan after wrestling fan has improved the quality of their life, especially during quarantine this year with Bluetooth. This is a game changer. It's not for guys with ED. Okay, I guess it could help with that. But this is really aimed at guys like me and you, our age, late 30s, early 40s, maybe mid to late 40s, maybe early 50s. Want to go ahead and get a match. Want to feel like you're 19 again. Remember the days when the wind would blow and feel like wow, wow, wow. Okay. Can do that again here with blue shoe here's another advantage that we haven't spent enough time talking about with blue shoe. you have trouble swallowing pills you've probably missed out on viagra and cialis not only was it more expensive and a hassle but you had to swallow this is this is not a pill this is a chewable now it's got the same great active ingredients that you find in viagra and cialis but now it's a chewable you can take them on a full or empty stomach because it's a chewable, it could work faster and it's all prescribed by a doctor. That's the safest part of the whole thing. Just want to make sure everybody knows as they're listening to this, a bluechew.com affiliated physician is going to work with you and find the right dosage and active ingredient that's best for you. Now that online physician consult, well, that's free. So it's cheaper than the other two. It's also very fast because it only takes a few minutes to connect with one of those affiliated physicians at bluechew.com. And if you qualify, you get prescribed online very quickly. To recap, there's no in-person doctor visit. There's no awkward conversation. There's no waiting in line at a pharmacy. Instead, this is going to ship directly to your door, all in discreet packaging. These chewables from bluechew.com are made in the USA. That's right. The red, white, and blue chew. You and your partner are going to love it. So what are you waiting for? Chew it and do it. And this is what mama really wants for the holiday. Okay. Stuff her stockings like she's never had it stuffed before. Here's your offer. Visit bluechew.com and get your first order for free. When you use our promo code 83 weeks, just pay $5 shipping. Is that fair enough? Free. How's free sound, Bubba? 
That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, and the promo code is 83weeks. That's BlueChew.com, the promo code is 83 weeks. You pay $5 shipping and get a rock-hard dang doll. It's as easy as one, two, three at BlueChew.com. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some storyline stuff. In storyline, Rhino has been signed to a new contract offered by turning on his teammates. But Meltzer would say, unless things change, unless things have changed in the more recent few days in real life, he didn't sign a new deal with TNA. And the belief is he may not be sticking around and he would continue actually in watching impact this week. They clearly stated that Rhino's contract expired and he had turned heel to please Bischoff to earn a new contract as opposed to formerly acting as if Bischoff had given him the new contract to turn heel. Do you remember there being some. Uh, concern that, Hey, uh, maybe Rhino's not here for the long term. I was concerned, uh, from a, just a storytelling point of view. Um, you kind of need to know who's on your bench and who's not. So I was concerned, you know, and I, I've always gotten along with Rhino. I, I met him in WWE. We shared a hotel room in Hawaii on a layover and, uh, because WWE forced everybody to double up. So don't anybody run off and start suggesting there was any hanky panky between Rhino and I, although he is a, just an attractive son of a bitch mm. and he is from Detroit. So there was a natural chemistry there, but was he, was he tender and unselfish? You know, he is a very tender guy. He's a very soft spoken, uh, gentle giant mm. I, is, is it's how I would describe him, you know, away from the ring. Just a, a very sophisticated fellow that people wouldn't expect. But um, so I always got along with Rhino, and I certainly wanted him to be around. And I, I thought highly of his character and his ability. And I loved his finish. People anticipated his finish. So that's always a good thing. Um, but it was a financial issue, it was a money thing. And I wasn't involved in the money thing with TNA. So I was just kind of waiting to see. Well, let's uh, wait and see what happens on the show here. Let's also talk about what's not happening on the show. It's Bubba versus Devon. Uh, Meltzer would say the Bubba Devon match is not going to be on final resolution and is instead being held off for a later date, probably the January pay-per-view. What's the thinking here? Why not finish the year with a bang? Why did you guys decide to, uh, if you had to guess, hold off on the inevitable Bubba versus Devon match? You know, I'm not sure. I wasn't involved in those conversations, so I'm not really sure what it could have been. I'm, if I had to guess, as you suggested, I would suggest that Bully had a different idea or a way to make it feel bigger, and it was more than likely his decision to, to hold off. That would be my best guess. Bully was more of the creative drive of the two. Is that fair to say? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Bully was always, you know, we, we would have, you know, when we showed up at TV, now Bully wasn't involved in creative during the course of the week, at least not that I know of. Now, Russo may have, you know, been talking to him throughout the week. That's that's a distinct possibility and wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. It's probably what should have happened. Um, but when we got to TV um, the morning of, there was always a big production meeting where everybody sat down with the format and we'd go through it and it would give everybody involved an opportunity to either add things that they felt might make the creative better or eliminate things or come up with different ideas or new opportunities. 
it was kind of like the final, final draft. Um, and Bully was always a part of that. Bully and Taz, both, were always a part of that. Devon, uh, I, I just don't remember ever seeing Devon in any of those meetings. He may have been from time to time, but generally it was, and I, I probably remember Bully and Taz the most because they spoke up the most. Mm. They came to the table, you know, either with critique, you know, constructive critique of what was proposed for that show or ways to, you know, what if we do this? How do we make it better? And I, I, I've said this before in the show, it's not going to surprise anybody. I've always got along with Bully since I worked with him in WWE. We became pretty good friends there uh, beyond just casual acquaintances. And then working with him in TNA, I really got to know him. And Bully is, I love working with Bully. Pulls no punches. He's got no agenda. I mean, we all have agendas to a certain degree. You're human. You, of course, you're going to be motivated by certain things. But um, Bully was about as pure of a creative person as I have worked with. Pure meaning, you know, what's best for the show, what's best for the match. Uh, if he had an agenda, man, you wouldn't know it. You'd have to be pretty smart to see it coming. He was so good. And I love his thought process. I say love because I'm sure he still is great at it. I loved working with him. And he and I would, we'd often take over those meetings. They would start out with about 15 people around a table or 20. And those 15 or 20 people were pretty much listening to Bully and I going back and forth in a, in a fun, constructive way. And we would often look at things from two different angles. And I miss working with Bully. I miss working in that environment in general, but I really miss working with Bully in particular because we could be, we were never disrespectful to each other, right? but there were no punches pulled. There was no sugarcoating anything. There was no, politi there was no political speak. There was never disrespect, but it was such a fun way to communicate and collaborate when you've got somebody that believes in what they're seeing in their head and have the ability to articulate it, you know, in, in a collaborative way, it's, he was the best, you know, Taz would, Taz would get, Taz would speak up when there was something that he saw that he just didn't really like that made no sense to him. Taz would get animated and he would, he would command as much presence in the room as anybody on those occasions, but they were, they were fairly rare. Um, Bully was the one that, you know, like I said, Bully and I were probably the two people in the room that sucked up the most oxygen in any given week. And, and by the way, Hulk Hogan was in those meetings um, 99 times out of 100. Of course, Jason Hervey, my partner, was there, but he didn't speak up too much on wrestling stuff. He was there more for the production side of it, making sure we got the emotion we were looking for and the promos and things like that. That was pretty much Jason's job, but you had Keith Mitchell in there. I would often try to, I've said this to you before, and I think I talked about Keith a year or two ago when, or a little over a year ago when AEW kicked off is Keith Mitchell is another guy that <clears throat> he would, he would, he would speak up. If you asked him as a, he wouldn't like raise his hand and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because, or wait a minute. What if we do this instead? That wasn't Keith. Keith was there to make sure he understood what we as a creative team were expecting or trying to achieve. And then he would figure out from a production perspective how to get there. Um, but if you tap into him, 
and you get him to come out of his, it's not a shell. He just, he knows his role and he's been around the wrestling business for a long time. And you don't, you don't get to say you've been around the wrestling business for a long time. If you're not a politician to a certain degree, but man, if you tap into him and you get him to lean into the creative wind just a little bit, he's seen it all. He's seen it all. He's a really smart guy. And he knows what comes off on television. Sometimes you come up with great ideas on paper and they just don't really play that well on camera. So he was, he was really great at that. Russo, of course, he would suck up a lot of oxygen, but nobody really listened to him. By the time a meeting would start, let's say at 10 o'clock in the morning, Vince would open it up. He'd start it off and he was shut down and just shaking his head, mumbling to himself by about 10, 15. The holidays are here. Have you made your wish list yet? Our sponsor today has the number one wished for gift of the year, Manscaped. The best in men's below and above the belt grooming, Manscaped is here to ensure you're taking care of your manhood and your nose hairs with their new performance package. Ho, 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 fellas. Naughty or nice, tis the season to perform. And let me tell you, nobody's going to want to perform anything with you if you got those old man nose hairs those old man ear hairs and I gotta tell you this ear hair thing has really been something that I've noticed for the first time in my life in the more recent years I don't know how it happens but dude Manscaped has changed my life actually I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this but I keep it by my recliner I just throw that thing in there and knock it out it's awesome uh, now I also want to mention the nose hair deal I know some of you personally I'm getting you one of these for Christmas trying to have a conversation with you and I can't take your ass serious because every time you talk it's like willow the wisp just waving at me stupid and gross but you're in luck because the manscape perfect package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle and it makes the perfect gift imagine opening an attractive box that says your balls will thank you with the most sought after gadgets and scents a person can find inside included in this new package is the weed whacker it's the ear and nose hair trimmer I was telling you about. It's waterproof. It's got a 9,000 RPM motor powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system. That's going to prove your nose hair ain't shit. And look guys, 79% of partners hold admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. Duh. Nobody wants you on top of them wearing it out. And you got that fucking nose hair moving back and forth. Why not use the best tools out there for the job? This bundle also includes the lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. It's the best trimmer on the market for your balls, for your butthole, for your body. The dads can't stop talking about this. The teens secretly buy this and the women are going to love you for it. I don't know why they want to do the things they want to do, but I know when it's been manscaped, they like doing it a little more. Tis the season to manscape. So go get yourself, your dad, your brother, your friends, even your coworkers. Might want to think about that one. The best gift of all the manscaped performance package. Let's not forget their famous liquidation formidations. That's right. Liquidation. I made that shit up. Just like they made up the crop preserver ball deodorant. Ball deodorant. We've all known a time or two where we probably could use some of that. How about the crop reviver? This is a game changer for Eric Bischoff. You can just tell by looking at him. He's got old man saggy balls, uh, but he's doing better than ever. Thanks to the crop reviver. It's going to maximize his hygiene and his ball routine. Also get that performance package now to receive two free gifts. We're talking manscaped boxers and the shed travel bag. Their performance package really is the best value that Manscaped has to offer. And baby, it's hot off the shelves. Right now, you can get 20% off plus free shipping with the promo code 83weeks at manscaped.com. Thank you, Manscaped, for making our holes look sexy. What? 
Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use our promo code 83 weeks. What are you waiting for? Go wacky weeds. Make Santa proud. You brought him up. I I, I want to circle back to him. Um, Bubba Ray, I got to tell you, I loved him as a performer in ECW. He was the best heel and bad guy they had for a long time. And then he becomes a megastar with the WWE and has an incredible run. And when their, when their contract was done and I don't know, they weren't renewed or they couldn't come to terms on money, whatever the case may be, I was kind of shocked because they had had such a big run. And you look at, you know, Edge and Christian, they were still around and the Hardy boys were still doing their thing, but now team 3d, we're going to go do something else. And then of course, a few years ago, they popped back up, had one last run, but now, and I know Bubba has, has done some stuff with ring of honor. Devon's working in a backstage capacity for the WWE. It's, it's odd to me that a guy who has as much passion for the business as, as Bubba Ray or, or, or bully Ray does, he's not working with WWE or he's not working with AEW. The other folks you mentioned, you know, Keith Mitchell, Taz, they're on the AEW side of things. Does is bully too opinionated? Did he rub some people the wrong way? Does he have heat brother? I can't put my finger on why he's not in a more important role with WWE or AEW. And by the way, not discounting what he's doing at all right now, uh, with ring of honor and certainly with busted open, busted open as a show. I enjoy every week, not because of that, nothing happened in Dave LaGreca, but because bully's great. Um, why do you think he's not working with AEW or WWE? Do you have an answer or a guess? I, I, I don't. I, and I don't know how he could have heat. I mean, he is bully is incredibly smart, incredibly experienced. He, he knows how to carry himself, you know, in the WWE, let's face it. There's a culture in WWE. Yes. I found out the hard way, you know, um, and if you're going to fit into that culture, you have to shed your skin and start wearing the skin that's provided to you by the head of culture <laughs> in WWE. You just have to. And some people can do that very easily. And, and, and you know, Adam Pierce, I think, by the way, is doing a fantastic job in, in, in WWE and has adapted really, really well. Certain people do. Certain people don't. I think bully at the stages, I'm just guessing we've never talked about it, but I think bully knows what it's like to be in WWE, especially in that role as a producer or on the creative team. I'm guessing that he just doesn't want it. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody's ever offered it to him. And maybe if someone did, he'd make a fool of me. I don't think so though. You know, bullies, bullies don't take this wrong. Don't make fun of me for saying this, but bullies a man's man. Yeah. He's very much of an individual and he'll compromise to a point mm -hmm. and then he won't. <laughs> and I'm guessing that's probably why now, as far as AEW goes, God, I don't know. I, you know, there's just not a lot of really experienced, talented people who understand the art of creating emotion. And that's what bully was best at. And maybe that's why I get along with him so well. 
on a working basis. We'd get along well, fine. Personally, that was easy, you know, sitting around having a you know cocktail or two after the show and laughing and joking and having fun. That's the easy part of, you know, being around somebody. But, you know, the hard part is, you know, when you're in the trenches and you're just giving it all you've got, you know, to come up with the best product possible. One of the reasons I always, you know, when a room would, when, a, when an idea would circulate around the TNA creative table on television days, I'd, I'd look in, you know, I'd, I'd listen to Hulk, you know, cause he has, he, Hulk had at that point, he had his own perspective, but he had no skin in the game. He was, he, by the way, it wasn't even part of his contract and he wasn't trying to come in and Bigfoot anything and lobby for anything. Um, when he first got there, a little different because he had, you know, he wanted to bring Rick Flaherty, he wanted to bring Jeff Hardy in, he wanted to bring Mr. Anderson in. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of things that Hulk wanted to do out of sheer enthusiasm and excitement as much as anything else. And he wanted, you know, great talent to work with. Um, but as time went on, after the first year or so, Hulk would come, you know, four hours early to TV. And if you know Hulk Hogan, like I know Hulk Hogan, Get you know because it was a two-hour drive from him to get if the traffic was good, which half the time it wasn't. So he'd get up super early in the morning, and he is a slow. <clears throat> excuse me, he, Hulk Hogan is a slow rolling train. I may have talked <laughs> talked to you about this before, but it's like okay, Hulk, we've got a ten o'clock meeting, or we're going to shoot some we're going to shoot some TV at ten o'clock in the morning on location. I would have to get a hold of Jimmy and say, okay, we want to get over there about 6.30, 6 a.m., get him rolling, because it takes him two hours when he's healthy. It just takes him two hours to get those gears grinding and you know make sure he's heading in the right direction. But he would get up early, drive two, two and a half hours to get to Orlando so he could be there for the production meeting. He didn't roll in at 4 o'clock. Uh, he, he was there oftentimes before anybody else got there. And oftentimes we rode together and we would get there and people would start filling into the office after we got there and he would, he would contribute, you know, and we'd bully as well. And not just out of respect. Part of it was respect, no doubt about it. Uh, in my case, part of it was because of my relationship with him, but largely because his perspective was really interesting, particularly because it had nothing to do with him, with Hulk. So um, I don't know why, bully's not there in AEW because he's valuable and there's just not that many people out there that have because look you don't want one perspective and there's some really talented people there obviously Chris Jericho goes without saying um, maybe one of the most creative people right now you know as far as laying out stories and matches and things like that can't take anything away from Chris but wouldn't you like to have two or three or four people that have Chris Jericho's kind of experience and feel, but maybe come at it from a couple different perspectives so that you have options and you're not just kind of, you know, looking down, uh, you're not looking through a telescope necessarily. You're kind of stepping back and getting a macro view instead of a telescopic view. And I think bully, I'm not pitching, obviously I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any skin in the game here, but I would think somebody like AEW would really benefit from, from Bully's experience. And I've, I've worked with him for years. I've seen it firsthand for a long time. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I hope it works out one day. The guy knows how to, you know, he could coach tag team wrestling. He can coach being a heel. He could coach promos. He's also, you know, I don't know how much more in-ring stuff he wants to do, but 
on the mic, you know, I'm pretty sure if he wanted to transition into being uh, a color guy or something like that, as they expand their programming, he would be phenomenal at that too. His promos too. I mean, this isn't, you know, let's pitch bully Ray hour here, but yeah, man, you talk about a guy that knows how to deliver a promo and he can teach. You've heard me say this before. There's a lot of people that can do, but they can't teach. Right. Um, bully can do it and he can teach it. I've watched him direct talent. You know, and part of that is, you know, because him and Devon own a wrestling school and, you know, you, you learn how to become a good teacher when you do it for a living, but bully can not only do, he can teach. And, uh, I hope he ends up there if that's what he wants to do, right? because he'd, he'd be, he'd be a, a valuable asset. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's worth mentioning. We don't, we don't know what's going on, which is why I just brought it up because I've always been fascinated by the idea that, you know, he's, he's not there. Um, good dude. Though. And he may, you know what? He's got a nice little gimmick going on. He's yeah. got a nice gig. He's got this beautiful lady. He likes living where he lives. He lives out in the country. You know, when I was living in Connecticut, we kept threatening to get together. And we just, you know, when you work for WWE, free time is not something you get a lot of. So yeah. uh, we never really got together. You know, I was only there for four months. He would have thought that there would have been time, but there wasn't really. Um, but he's, you know, he lives out in the country. He's got some, got some property and, you know, he, he's pretty happy dude. So that may be part of it too. Well, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about, uh, Brooke knows best. It comes out in the uh, reports here. VH one has decided to pass on doing another season of Brooke knows best. Of course, we remember Hogan knows best. This is a spinoff Brooke knows best. And, uh, well, coming to an end here the tv show what was hulk's reaction to this news you know hulk has had some ups and downs in in his life and his career but man it's probably another level when you see something not going exactly as you may have hoped for one of your kids right well you know that you know anybody who's a parent knows that and there was so much drama going on in hulk's life at that time And with his kids too, you know, they were obviously a part of that. The wheels were falling off in so many different ways. And I don't think I'm out of school when I say this. Um, That show created so much more drama in a dramatically toxic family dynamic. Anyway, Hulk was more than anything, I think relieved. He never told me that, but he didn't have to because it was so much drama. And listen, you know, people that have never done reality shows, they look like they might be kind of fun because by the time you see it on TV, after after we spent 30 days together, you know, shooting six or eight episodes, working 18 hours a day, and when you do a show like Hogan Knows Best or Brooke Knows Best, they're in your personal life. You have no space. You know, they're, they're just showing up at your house at 7 o'clock in the morning, and they're there till 11 o'clock at night. And it's not just a cameraman and a director and an audio person. You've got lighting crews. You've got set people. I mean, you got audio people. There's probably no fewer than 15, 18 people in your house 15, 16, 18 hours a day, five, six, seven days a week, six days a week for sure. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's fun for two days, 
Yeah. And then it becomes a grind. Now, when you add divorces and drama and, you know, all the chemical influence that was going on with, you know, Linda and all the issues that it created, it was just, it was a disaster. I think Hulk was, he, I think he just went, oh, brother. <laughs> that was probably his reaction when he heard. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. She's beautiful, classy, and she's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. She's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring and takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista is available. She's ready for love and ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one carat round, brilliant cut diamond is only 31.98. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus free shipping and 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only or go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista ready for love engagement ring. Steven Singer jewelers, real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven Singer.com. He put a lot of time, effort, and energy in trying to make Brooke a big star, you know, between TV and reality shows and wrestling and the albums. I think she's probably, uh, very happy in, in, in her life now. And I actually met her a few years ago in Nashville in passing. And it feels like, you know, she's sort of redefined her life a little bit. Do you think that is, um, still something she has aspirations of doing? Is it a major disappointment to Hulk that, you know, she wasn't able to achieve what those goals may have been at first. My impression was that he was disappointed for her, not for himself. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I think as Brooke began to realize this just wasn't going to work for her, um, and, and as Brooke got comfortable with that, it took a lot of pressure off Terry. Yeah. I mean, uh, Terry Bollea is a fantastic father. I, I could say that without hesitation. He is a wonderful father. He would do anything for his kids and has yeah. in many ways. But I, I think he was relieved, you know, and it's, it's not about money. I don't want to make this conversation about money, but, you know, Brooke, by the way, I don't know if you've ever heard her sing. She's got an amazing voice, an amazing voice. She's a very talented singer. And she's actually, now what am I? I'm not in the music business, so my opinion doesn't mean shit right so take this with a grain of salt but i've heard some of the songs that she's written uh, several of them and she's really in my from my uneducated point of view she's really good in fact i jason and i both try now she, there, there was a, i think around 2010 brooke was still Brooke saw herself in a version of a Britney Spears type, that type of music, you know, pop, 
Mm-hmm. What do you, I don't even know what the name of the music is. Club music. Pop, you're right. Yeah, whatever. She, she loved that kind of music, and that's how she saw herself. But the, the challenge that, that Brooke had was she wasn't Brooke Balea. She was Brooke Hogan. Mm. And when you bring the wrestling perception, when you bring the wrestle, I'm going to call it baggage. And sometimes it's great baggage, by the way. So just because I'm calling it baggage doesn't mean I'm You're not you being know, negative. talking yeah. about it. Yeah, I'm not talking about it negatively. But when you, t- when you go from the wrestling business into the music business and your last name is Hogan, credibility becomes an issue. You know, people automatically, consciously or subconsciously, it's, well, why, is, why are we listening to this demo? Yeah. Because it's Hulk Hogan's daughter? Huh? And, and rather than listening, it, listening to that song with, you know, impartial ears, you already have an attitude or a perception. The other thing that challenged Brooke was she's, you know, she's a big girl. Right. You know, she, she's, I don't know how tall she is, but. You know, every time I see her and she comes up and gives me a hug, I feel like a dwarf. You know, I'm 5'11 and 200 pounds, and I Brooke's hugging me, and I kind of feel like she could pick me up and lawn dart me, <laughs> you know? And if, if, and that doesn't matter if you're a singer, but, it, it, you know, when everything is on television and it's all music videos and that kind of thing, you know, being as just a physically as big as she is, she was always in shape, by the way. I'm not suggesting she was overweight or right, right, she right. wasn't. She's just big. She's got the Hulk Hogan, you know, gene going on there. She's just a big boned woman. Um, I think that probably had a little bit to do with it. And Jason and I, you know, early on when she was still kind of chasing a Britney Spears direction, we said, Brooke, go country, go country. Cause that in country, not that we knew anything about the music business, but we knew plenty of people that did, by the way. And that's where some of this input was coming from. It's like, you know, the, the Brooke Hogan thing isn't the same kind of baggage. And in fact, can be a little bit of leverage and good, be a more positive thing in a country music environment. But she just wasn't into country music at that time. She just didn't see herself getting excited about country music. That changed a couple of years later. And she moved to Nashville, actually. And I think she still lives in Nashville, yeah, if I'm she not does. mistaken. She does. Um, she loves Nashville. And her whole attitude about country music has changed. What I hope for Brooke, and this is, it's like the Bully Ray hour. Now it's the Brooke Hogan hour. But what I hope for Brooke is that she gets into writing. Because writing, you can write songs for anybody. And you can write songs for people that are hot. And you can write songs that make a lot of money writing songs. Um Chris Christopherson did okay. You know, a lot of people have done okay writing songs. And maybe she'll still end up there. I don't know. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about you guys running shows in Abu Dhabi. Can't believe this is real. It's uh, paid shows, I believe. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but it's November 28th to the 30th. Um, it's kind of a cool deal, you know, when you guys are able to, to run a show across the world like this, where you're just used to seeing. In this era, more often than not, TNA from the impact zone. Uh, unfortunately, it's not as uh, well promoted as maybe we would have liked. And again, you've got a, an outside promoter, so I don't know that you're necessarily worried about losing money, but boy, whoever these promoters are, are probably taking a bath. Uh, there's a 4,000 seat arena and there's 350 fans there. Oh. And, and the next day, there's 250 fans. Tickets are very expensive $270. 
um, because of the local customs, of course, the women are wearing different attire. They're not quite as revealing. They're mostly covered up. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how a deal like this comes together. You and I have never spent a lot of time talking about a, a sold show where a promoter says, Hey, bring your act here and we're going to pay you X and we'll worry about sales and promotion and all of that. We just need you guys to put on a show. It's a guaranteed money deal, but I'm sure there's been some weird situations doing this over the years. Oh, no doubt about it. <clears throat> I mean, it happened to us in WCW early on before we got hot. Uh, we talked about this maybe a couple of weeks ago. We just barely touched on it. But, you know, in the promotion business or the entertainment business, they call that a four-wall event, meaning travel's paid, venues are taken care of, all the promotion is done by the local promoter. You're getting a flat fee to come across a pond or wherever. And <clears throat> that's great if you're working with a really credible promoter that really knows what they're doing. Um, in this case, as it was the case in WCW for a long time until we kind of got our feet underneath us a little bit and started getting some momentum and we could have conversation with promoters who are far more credible and are just better promoters, um, that, that changed. But early on, we would go over, we would four wall events, either in the UK or Germany or wherever, and just shake our heads go, what, what the hell? And I think the problem, Conrad, and this happens to here in the States, you know, oftentimes one of the reasons that people used to run, I don't think they do it too much anymore. I, at least I'm not aware of it, but promoters used to love running um, state fairs during the summer and the fall because those were four-walled events. Those local state fairs had a budget for entertainment and they would, you know, sometimes they, obviously they would bring in some big names, usually country music stars or whatever they, whoever they would bring in, um, that was a, a big name. And then whatever was left over for the budget, they would try to fill in some of the blanks with. And typically they would go to wrestling promoters because, relatively speaking, wrestling is a fairly inexpensive event to four wall unless you're bringing in the WWE. You know, AWA used to do the same thing. Um, I sold some shows. To, to state fairs around the Midwest. There was a guy in AWA. His name was Rob Russin. Do you know Rob Russin or do you know of him? The name rings a bell, but I've never met him. Yeah, Rob Russin, I think, uh, God, I hate to say this because I'm probably going to be wrong, but it doesn't matter. Who gives a shit? I think Rob Russin was a boxing promoter at one point. He lived down in Florida. And Verangania hired him. He came up to Minnesota to handle four-wall events, paid shows. And... Rob Russin brought in Paul Heyman and, and Paul Heyman and Rob Russin worked in the AWA at the same time I did. That's why I first met Paul. And that was pretty much their job was to, you know, sell events to four wall events. And the problem is you have no idea. You have no control over anything. You have no idea what kind of a job anybody's going to do. And you, you care because it's your brand that's showing up in front of three or 400 people in Abu Dhabi and everybody looking around at each other going, what the fuck did we do? What are we here for? Why did you come? I don't know. Why did you come? God, I don't know. I feel like an idiot for dropping 270 bucks. Let's not tell anybody we came. That's kind of what happens to you when you depend on a promoter that doesn't either know what they're doing or doesn't have the budget to do it right. Um, and when you're deal when you're a low level promotion, when you're a low level brand <clears throat> or a new brand, 
that people aren't aware of and you don't have a lot of traction, those are the type of people that reach out to you and want to do business with you. And they almost always go badly. It's never too early to start that holiday gift shopping, especially because today you can save big on a gift. I know they're going to use every day. Raycon wireless earbuds. This has been a home run in my life. I can't tell you how many of these I've gifted. I've got Casio kid rocking them. I got big booty Judy rocking them. Of course, both of my girls have them. Megan loves them. Everyone is in love with Raycon wireless earbuds, but for different reasons. Now, one of the favorite things that you'll see when you get your pair or you gift your pair, you've probably already got some. It's how easy it is to pair with your phone. I mean, you talk about automatic. It's so easy. Even my parents could do it. But what I like best about it is the sound. I feel like these have more bass than any other sort of headphones or wireless earbud solution that I've used. But I know that what Eric Bischoff likes best about it, and you've heard him talk about it here on the show, is it's a comfortable fit. A lot of these earbud solutions are not comfortable, especially if you have even a little bit of cauliflower ear going on. These are a breeze for Eric. They've got seamless Bluetooth pairing, comfortable noise isolating fits. You can start listening right away. You can keep listening for hours. And I can't stress this enough. The audio quality here is just amazing, especially when you compare what you get from the other premium brands. And I want to remind you, Raycon started like half the price. So this holiday season, get them something they can use for calls or music or binging podcasts, whether they're at home or on the go, work, play, whatever. Raycon is their solution. By the way, this isn't just a great gift. If you don't already have a pair, you need one for yourself. But this is something that you're going to use every day and they're going to use every day. Go to buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only, and you don't want to miss it. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash 83 weeks. Buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. Let's, uh, let's talk about some notes from the Thanksgiving impact. Meltzer would say it was a very entertaining show overall, but still lacking in putting together an interesting pay-per-view build. He says the major theme was that the top heel group fortune and the immortals along with security guys, Gunner and Murphy, uh, were with Bischoff and Hogan, all celebrating Thanksgiving together in the very, very first segment, Bischoff announced that he had invited Dixie Carter to join them for dinner. Everyone who was mad about that and couldn't understand why, but then nobody was madder than Hogan who was blindsided and said Bischoff should have consulted him first. They did all these segments, most of which were very funny and constantly teased the Carter arrival. As it turned out, Carter didn't arrive until in theory, two and a half hours late and well into reaction. It was strange enough to shoot what was purported to be such a major angle change on Thanksgiving when one would expect viewership to be down. But then to actually air the angle on reaction when most of the audience would in theory have tuned out makes no sense at all. The idea is obviously to keep the audience as long as you can, but we've shown time after time that TNA playing this game simply doesn't keep the audience. What do you remember about this and and the, the, the idea to pay it off on reaction? Yeah. It's funny that that was Dave's perspective because reaction was performing so well, it was blowing executives at spike TV away, you know, and I'll talk about reaction a little bit. 
I know I patted myself on the back last time we talked about it, and I'll probably do so again here for a minute. But, you know, around this time, I, I remember I was driving from Phoenix to Los Angeles. I had a meeting in L.A., and I was going to be there for a few days, so I, I didn't want to fly. I decided to drive. You know, it was only five, six-hour drive from Phoenix to L.A., so I drove it. And I was on my way to L.A. from Phoenix, and I got a call from uh, – I was on the phone with Kevin Kay. And Kevin Kay was the, the head of Spike TV at the time. Um, and Scott Fishman, who was the executive in, in charge of WC, or excuse me, of TNA. Um, and we were on a conference call. And TNA had been wanting to come up with what's referred to in the television industry as shoulder programming. Um, it, it, they want, TNA wanted another TNA-branded show, but not one that necessarily involved actual wrestling, if that makes sense. And there was no budget. TNA didn't really have any money to spend. Spike TV was tapped out with what they were spending, you know, on, on impact because they were spending quite a bit from what I was told. So Kevin Kay and Scott Fishman called me and we were talking about, I said, well, let me, you want a show that you can't really afford to pay for. TNA wants a show that they can't afford to pay for. So let me see what I can do. And Jason and I sat down and we came up with this format for reaction, which, and one of the reasons it was so cheap, I told you last time we talked about it, it was $5,000 an hour. After we got done recording, I, I think I remember it was actually $7,500 an hour, not five. But um, we came up with this idea since the talent was already there, the crew was already there. We could get into some real strong storytelling type of formats and it would at least, if nothing else, even if only a small handful of people watched it, it helped advance the story. We could use clips from a reaction on the, on the following week's show to help support what was going to happen that night, if that makes sense to you. So we could, we'd have our action on Thursday. Thursday night, we would shoot the reaction with the talent in those OTF interviews or confessional style interviews, maybe shoot an angle, something that didn't necessarily involve a referee and a bell in a crowd, but it would all be storytelling. And then hopefully some people would watch it. And even if they didn't, we had great material to use to help us to set up the following week's show. That was the logic behind it. Surprise, surprise, the first episode or two we did, did over a million viewers. We held the audience, unlike Dave's perception here, it held the audience really well. Now, we didn't hold on to that million, million plus over an extended period of time. Like we've seen with SmackDown on Fox and the AEW on TNT, you start out here and you start to deteriorate. Usually that deterioration Generally speaking, in the television industry, is about 30%. When, it, when a new show premieres, you can expect, realistically, a 20 to 30% drop over the course of the series. That's not unusual. And it's not necessarily a sign of failure either. It's expected, anticipated. But we still held, even as things were, you know, people were becoming more and more used to reaction, you know, for $7,500 an episode, we were delivering seven, eight, nine hundred thousand 900,000 viewers a week. So despite Dave's commentary here, in opinion, Reaction was holding the audience. And a lot of the things that we did on Reaction were for, you know, discussion and setup for the following week's show. So there was logic to it that, of course, Dave wasn't 
privy to and wasn't a part of and wouldn't be able to figure out, you know, sitting in San Jose typing shit. So um, that was the logic behind it. Did you, and we've seen you on camera for, well, most recently AEW, but of course in WWE uh, prior to this TNA run. And of course, most famously with WCW, did you enjoy your on-air work here in TNA? No, I didn't. And I was reminded of that this morning as I was watching again, I looked like shit. I wasn't in TV shape, meaning I was carrying probably 15, 20 extra pounds at that point. I just, I didn't put forth the effort. Now I performed, you know, my performances were generally decent or pretty good, but my physical appearance, you know, I go back, I look at them now. I'm kind of embarrassed that I allowed myself. I wish somebody would have pulled me aside and said, motherfucker, get a haircut, lose 20 pounds, you know, dress a little better and show up next week. But I, but part of that was, I just, I, I really wasn't into it. It wasn't my goal to be on TV and TNA. It just wasn't. This is going to sound, I got to be really careful how I say this. Cause sometimes I say things in exuberance and trying to make a point and I go over the top oftentimes. <clears throat> and sometimes I mislead people how I really felt, but I wasn't excited about being on camera and TNA because to be honest with you, look what I did in WCW when we were hot. Okay. Look what I got to do in WWE while I was there. TNA was, he was, TNA was a notcher four down. I'd already been to that mountain. Now I didn't, I didn't say that to myself when I got there. You know, I didn't say that to myself every time it was time to go out to do, do a scene, but deep down inside, that's how I felt about it. You know, I would have been very happy to not be on TV and TNA. That really wasn't my goal or even my idea, by the way. But in an environment where everybody wants to get the biggest bang for their dollar, <clears throat> Janice, it was like, oh, no, no, no. we have, you know, we got to make it get, get as much use out of them as we can. And, and, and part of it was me. I'm not going to put it all on somebody else. I'm, that would be un, that would not be fair or honest. I would, I would allow myself to get sucked in because it made sense on paper but I wasn't passionate about it. And there's a big difference. If you're going to be on TV, you better damn well be passionate about it or it's going to show, you know? And in my case, it showed because I wasn't physically prepared. My performances were fine. I'm sure I did some things in TNA that were really pretty good. I'm sure I did some things that weren't good, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Once the red light went on, I put myself into it. Don't get me wrong. I didn't go out there with a half-assed attitude. But when I, when I, you know, when I saw myself this morning, I was embarrassed, frankly. The idea that, that Dixie is such a, a big part of the television programming, you know, when's she going to arrive? Oh, she's on her way. You know, we saw this with, with, you know, Vern Gagne on AWA. And then, you know, you were the authority figure there for a while in WCW and obviously Vince McMahon you know, made himself a billionaire with this is Russo writing this just to stay in good graces with Dixie, or did he really feel like this is what the fans want to see? 
Wow, you've just touched on a powder keg of discussion. And, and I'm not sure that we have time on this show to get into it. Um, but there was some real duplicity going on. Not quite the word of the show, not quite the word of the day. Duplicity is not that cool of a word, but we'll put a little mark by it. But there was some real duplicity going on here. And this is where, once again, you know, when I came to TNA, it was like, you know what? I don't have to like Vince Russo. <clears throat> I, don't, I, I do have to trust him, but I'm going to let bygones be bygones. I didn't come in with any Russo baggage. I didn't come in with a chip on my shoulder. None of that. And once I made the decision to go there, um, I left all my baggage behind and I wiped the slate clean and said, all right, I'm just going to give, I'm going to give this another shot. I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to be a pro. Let's move forward. And of course, you know, before I actually signed on a dotted line, Dixie wanted me to get together with Russo blah, 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 blah. and you know, Vince Russo can be, one of the most charming people you ever engage in conversation with. He can be. He's a great salesman when he's selling himself. He's a great salesman. And, and because I wanted it to be true, <clears throat> I wanted to believe that we could make it work, which when you want to believe something, you put your, <clears throat> excuse me. When you, when I want to believe something, I drop my guard completely. I don't go into it with one hand up or like this. I, I lead with my chin because otherwise you're not really giving a relationship a chance. If for me, now other people all operate different ways and maybe it works that way. But for me, if I'm going to engage with somebody, I, I can't go in half-assed or in the back of my mind, not trusting them or any of that kind of shit. I just can't. So once again, you know, that's why when you and I first started working together and Vince Russo's name came up and I said, that will never happen. I will never share a stage with him. I'll never do a show with him. There will never, ever in my lifetime be a situation where you'll see me and Vince Russo together for any amount of money, realistically. Um, it's because I gave him two shots and I got fucked over twice. And what was going on here and this is really, I have to really put myself in a different headspace to go into real detail here because there's a lot of moving pieces. But Vince would call me, and he, I don't know if you've been around Vince enough or talked to Vince enough, but when he wants to be the sympathetic baby face, it's like, oh, man. He would call me, oh, Eric. Oh, she's driving me crazy. I can't even do a Vince Russo impersonation. I just won't. Bro. But, bro. It wasn't even bros. Like he was defeated. He was almost on the verge of tears. It's like, I'm trying so hard. I just, Dixie's wanting to put herself on television. I just don't want to do it. I just, I don't want to do it. Oh my God, you got to help me. So I, leading with my chin, I'd go in and do my best to shit on that. Not shit on that. I would go in and do my best to dissuade her to a certain degree. Right. But what he was really doing was encouraging her. So I'm the bad guy. 
Vince is telling her, oh, you be, you're the best. Oh, man, I don't know why he doesn't watch. I don't know what he said. I was in a, obviously in a room. If I would have been in a room, I would have knocked him the fuck out for lying. But, you know, nonetheless, he, he was he was working both ends against the middle because I made him uncomfortable. He didn't like the fact that there was somebody that actually knew what they were doing in the room with them. He liked to surround himself by people. That's why he was very comfortable in TNA when he first got there, because Vince Russo did actually know more than anybody else there. It's because everybody else there knew absolutely nothing. So it was an easy room for a guy like Vince Russo to con. It was really easy. It was like taking candy from a baby. And Vince loved that. Russo loved that. Once I got there, it became a little more challenging because I'd call bullshit. But I saw it. Not right away. I waited. You know, not that I was like biding time, but nobody really wanted me to speak up too much when I first got there. I stayed in my lane. If it's a Hulk Hogan story or if it affects Hulk Hogan going in the future, I got to tag in. If it's not, fuck it. Do whatever you want to do. doesn't matter to me. Unless you ask me my opinion, I'll keep my shit to myself. That was my relationship there. Not as, you know, people have, as the narrative has evolved over the years, I had nothing to do with anything in TNA when it came to business decisions or booking decisions early on, unless it involved Hulk. Last time I'll disclaim that. But I caught Russo working both ends against the middle and it got so bad. I mean, Dixie and I, we'd be on the phone and it what started out as a discussion escalated to the point where she's in tears. I'm yelling, you know, cause I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns if, if it's what I really believe. I'm not going to throw in the towel and quit. And it just escalated and escalated partly because I thought I'm doing what Russo wanted me to do. You know, I'm trying to help here in dissuading her and, until we figured out what was going on. And we figured out what was going on because the tension had escalated so bad there was an attorney there, a super guy, by the way. His name's Guy Blake. He was a TNA attorney. He's based in Los Angeles. Um, and Guy Blake and I, you know, we got along. We would be honest with each other. He would try to coach me through some of the more nuanced challenges that existed within Panda Energy and TNA. And I'm not going to get into all of that because I don't want to do that to, to Guy Blake. But Guy was, Guy wanted to see it work. <clears throat> excuse me, guy wanted to see everything work and he knew where I was coming from. And as he ended up engaging in conversations with me that allowed me to see things much more clearly. So it got to the point between Dixie and I, where I, I remember it was, it was in the fall somewhere. I, I only remember that because I was out, you know, I was in my truck and driving around looking at the fall colors up in the mountains. And I get a phone call from Guy Blake said, well, you're coming to TV, right? You know, we'll work this out at television. This issue that we were having between Dixie and Russo and myself. I said, nah, I'm not. I'm just not. It's not going to be productive. We're just going to carry this Michigas for my Yiddish friends. We're going to carry this craziness over into TV. It's not going to be productive. Nothing's going to change. So, no, I'm, I'm not coming. And, you know, he talked me off that cliff because that would have been escalating it to a point where there would have been a breach of contract and things like that. So he talked me off the cliff and I showed up and it was exactly what I thought it would be. Well, the following week, I'm pretty sure it was the following week, everybody realized that we got to fix this. This is not... This is not Dixie and I aren't barely talking to each other. 
Um, she's so angry with me. She's breaking down in tears over the phone. I'm so angry. I'm not even willing to get on a plane to come to TV. It was just really getting ugly. So Guy Blake said, all right, let's, let's all get together. We got to hash this out. We're going to sit down in a room like men and like professionals, and we're going to all lay our cards out on the table and we're going to work it out. I said, okay, that's the right thing to do. So we did. It was myself. I got to be a little careful here because this is probably falls into a category of shit that I shouldn't talk too much about. I'll be general, but you'll get the picture. The principles in the debate were all together and the meeting was chaired, if you will, by Guy Blake, TNA's attorney. Dean Broadhead was there. Obviously, Russo was there. It was, but it was a small room. And we all laid our cards on the table. And Vince was doing his best. Now, he, here's the thing with Vince Russo. I don't think he sits down and plans out all of his lies and bullshit. I think he believes what he says. I think he talks him like, you know how he talks. He, he just tries so hard, bro. You know, he pitches and pitches and pitches to the point where the people around him aren't necessarily buying his bullshit. They're just getting tired. They're getting tired of listening to him talk. And it's like, fuck it. I'm throwing in the towel. I'll let him do whatever he wants to do. You, he literally beats you to death with his mouth um, and his voice. But we got into this meeting and all of a sudden it became real apparent what Russo was doing. He was working both ends against the middle. And it, it was kind of a, he said, she said, you said thing. And I said, you know what? And I'm not going to mention this cat's name because he's a super good guy. And I don't want to put him in the middle of anything or have him read him, see his name in a dirt sheet. Cause he's too cool, cool of a guy for that. But there was an individual that was a part of the creative team that was privy to all of this. And he was the most, he was straight up, honest, hardworking, He'd keep his mouth shut, but if you put him on the spot, he would tell the truth. So I said, go get him. Go get this guy. Let he He's heard it all. Let him come into the room. Let him tell you what he's seen and heard. Because we were trying to figure out who was, you know, what was going on here. We didn't realize, I did, but nobody else would believe that Vince Russo was playing both ends against the middle to try to make himself feel more secure. And so this individual came in and Guy Blake, the attorney, looked at him and said, okay, Eric has this opinion. Vince has this opinion. Where do you stand? Eric's right. That was it. End of meeting. Russo's on a plane on his way home. And we got demoted as a result of it. He was still, he was still on the team, but he was no longer head writer, so to speak. So that's a very abridged, legally safe, I hope, um, version of the story. And I'm sure Vince Russo would have his own. Of course he would, because <laughs> that's Vince Russo. But that's what happened. And then, and then from that point, by that time, you know, Dixie was a part of TV. She, the, the move had been made. And from that point, I worked really hard to, do, to, to help. And so did Jason Hervey, by the way. Jason more than me. Because she got along, she liked Jason more than me. She was more comfortable. You know, we got along. Dixie and I get along after the show. We get along fine after the show. But um, my style, if if I had one at the time, I'm fairly direct. I, Jason was much more subtle, <laughs> and Dixie was more comfortable with subtle. 
So Jason directed her more, but I tried as well. And there were times when I'd work with her directly and I would direct her through an interview and her facial expressions and her, her timing and less is more. And, you know, all of those things that um, are important when you're directing a scene. And then I tried to make it as good as it could possibly be, but Dixie liked to be on TV. That was a big part of it. She really, she, I've said this before. And again, it's not a criticism because it's not the wrong thing to do, or it wasn't at that point in my opinion, but she really wanted to be the face of that company. And it helped. And she, she, she was right to a degree because when you're the face of the company, when you're on camera, that has value. When you take a meeting with somebody in the UK, for example, when you're trying to get deals on it, Dixie was a great, Dixie was a great salesperson. She really was probably still is. She's, she's smart. She's articulate. She's passionate about what she's doing. She's really good. And to be able to have that added, you know, patina of being a character on the show and, and the authority figure is an advantage in some cases. Um, Vince McMahon has made himself a billionaire, as you just said a few moments ago, doing the same thing. But once we were in bed with Dixie, so to speak, as a manner of speech, don't go nuts on me here, social media. But once we had made that decision and commitment, then it was all hands on deck trying to make it work as well as we could. But it, you know, Dixie loved being on TV. <laughs> she wanted to be the Vince McMahon. She wanted to be the female Vince McMahon. That was her goal. The most hated jeweler in America makes holiday shopping easy. Steven Singer has the perfect gift for that special someone who's the center of your universe. The one who your whole world revolves around. That person who's the star of your love story, show her it's her with Steven's brand new exclusive star of love diamond necklace. Picture it, a star necklace covered in real sparkling diamonds with an open heart in the center. This beautiful necklace is just $128 plus fast and free shipping in time for Christmas. Great jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Buy real jewelry from a real jeweler you can trust. Steven Singer is not in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. It's easy. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Star of Love Diamond Necklace. Steven's real expert jewelers are available seven days a week to help you. In his showroom at the other corner of the 8th and Walnut in Philly, by appointment only or through email, chat, phone text, or virtual video appointments, Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Do you think we'll ever see Dixie in wrestling again? You know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by her story. I mean, she was clearly committed and I know for whatever reason, the internet narrative has been all oh, LOL TNA and I get that, but really th this is a lady who put forth a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy and a ton of cash to create wrestling for us fans and sure she was trying to make a profit, but that eluded her, but we still got wrestling content on a consistent basis. And a lot of people will hear that and say, oh yeah, but it wasn't very good. Okay. Get out of your, uh, yourself for a minute. She created a lot of jobs for a lot of talented people. It's really the, the young bucks first foray into a national audience. Uh, AJ styles became a star there and that paved the way for what he is now in WWE. But if WWE had taken a pass on some of those talents along the way, 
would they have been able to sort of weather the storm until WWE came around on them? Would they have sort of thrown their hands up on their dream and said, Hey, I can't make a, a living here to support my family. I'm going to have to find something else. She did a great service for a lot of people and she's almost kind of like a recluse now. I mean, I'm not saying that to be ugly. I'm just saying like, we don't see her in the wrestling space. She's not writing books. She doesn't have a podcast. She's not making a bunch of personal appearances. It feels like she's content to just sort of fade away uh, from wrestling. And that's, that's, that's not a good thing. That's disappointing to me because TNA did a lot of great stuff and it was on her family's dime. Do you think we'll ever see her reemerge in some capacity? You know, I don't know, you know, well, in, in the first place, Dixie doesn't need to do appearances or no. do a podcast or any of those things, you know, her Dixie's fine financially, and she would be fine if she never worked a day again in her next two lifetimes. So financially, there's no, no need for her to go out there and, and do anything. Um, she's got, you know, she's got a family. She's got young kids. I can't remember how old her kids must be now. When was this? this is 10 years later. Kids are probably 15, 16, 17 years old now. And she loves her kids. She's very active in their lives. Um, so I, I doubt you'll ever see her because there's no motivation for her. And, and again, if Dixie, now if she, you know, I, who knows if we're ever going to do appearances again, like we used to do them, but um, you know, her Dixie Carter at an autograph signing, I don't see it yeah, because she doesn't need the money. And let's be honest, the reason most of us do it partly is because we love to meet the fans and, and have fun doing that. And that's, that is fun, but we do it for the money. You know, we're not millionaires. I'm not, you know, most of the people that show up and, and sign autographs and that type of thing, even if they are the Bret Hart's, the Undertaker's, you know, he's done a couple, he did one that I was at in the UK a year and a half or so ago. Um, they're not doing it just for the money. They don't need the money, but they like the money and, and they do it for the money. Dixie's not motivated by money right now. So I don't see her doing it and having to take some of the flack. I'm pretty sure I know that what that feels like. There, there's a certain, there is a certain comfort and your anonymity. When you've been in the spotlight, when you've been the subject of a lot of criticism and narrative and debate and, and it's negative, sometimes it's really comfortable just to go, you know what? Screw it. I, I'm really happy when people don't recognize me in the store or on the street or going through an airport. I, I personally, as much as I, I love doing this, this has become my new thing. I enjoy doing this more than I enjoy doing almost anything else. And, but it's different for me now. And you know, Conrad, when you and I first started, it wasn't like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and part of that, and I've been meaning to tell you this because you've, you've made a couple, you know, humorous references to it. And, and you and I have become close enough now. You, you, I'm not worried about any of that, but part of that was because I thought that's the way the audience expected me to be, mm. you know, the, Part of that was just probably me being oversensitive to 30 years of narrative abuse, <laughs> you know, where I, the minute I start hearing something that sounded like dirt sheet bullshit, I would just come out swinging. And I still do that a little bit now, but for a different reason, um, because the audience, at least the majority of them enjoy it. But 
not that what I'm saying isn't true, by the way, and isn't my true feeling, but the level of animation that we sometimes see is, I, I let me put it this way, I'm into entertaining myself, and a good chunk of our audience is entertained by it, I guess. But when you've been on the receiving end of, in my case, 30 years of that kind of shit, you just get to the point where you just, you, you, you lash out. And, and then when you and I first started doing the podcast, I thought, okay, he's Conrad is the, you know, he's the cynical fan. He's the guy that wants to pick shit apart. He's the guy that wants to put my feet to the fire. Okay. It's kind of like the first time I came to your house. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. That's his role. My role is this. Um, and then also a big part of it was I just wasn't comfortable yet. I couldn't have the type of conversations that you and I have now two years ago when we first started, because I, I didn't get comfortable with it all. Now, when I hear shit, you know, I mean, I have more fun beating up on myself and making fun of myself than I do listening to other people do it. Now it's cool. Now I like it. It's fun, but it took me a while to get there. And I don't think Dixie's there yet. And I don't think she wants to get there. Honestly, I just wish she could have fun in the wrestling space. I mean, I understand your point of, Hey, she doesn't need the money, but Lord, she didn't need the money when she was doing TNA to begin with. It was something that was a passion of hers that she enjoyed. And I feel like she could still have fun doing something in the wrestling space. And she deserves an opportunity at some point to, uh, you know, it's like we talked about with Jim Hurd. And by the way, I'm not angling for conversations with, with Dixie Carter. I'm just saying, I feel like because he wasn't out there actively defending himself and sort of policing the narrative, if you will, it just became LOL, Jim Hurd. And it's like, well, you forget that he did a lot of really cool stuff on his watch too. It wasn't all bad. Yes. There's some, there was some bad missteps along the way, but Lord, that could be said about any wrestling company or figure in history. And I, I don't know. I don't think. I don't think time has necessarily reconciled all the good that Dixie did yet. And I hope eventually that changes and she feels comfortable enough to come play in the space again. And maybe, you know, Conrad, maybe you need to, you know, reach out to her or, or, you know, um, I can't, I mean, I have a, a decent relation. I think I do anyway, uh, relationship with Dixie. We, we left on bad terms, but I'm over it. You know, and, I, and, and part of it is, you know, when, when I left TNA, they owed me $130,000, $120,000. I mean, flat out breached the contract. Um, just quit paying. No, no, no accusation that I failed to f- fulfill my end of the agreement. It just stopped paying because they were hurting. It was just, the tap was out of water, so to speak. Yeah. And I, you know, I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going to do what, you know, I would typically do back then is like, I'm, I'm going to fight. You know, if I don't even get a phone call or an explanation, you know, if somebody would have picked up the phone and said, Hey, Eric, we're really sorry. We know we owe you, we owe you the money, but we can't pay you. I probably would have said, okay. At that point, I didn't really need the money. So it wasn't that big of a deal. That sounds arrogant. hundred thousand dollars is always a big deal, but it wasn't something that I was going to turn my life inside out over, but i never got that. It was just nothing nothing. So I called my attorney and actually through a friend of mine, who's an attorney in Nashville. I'm not going to name his name because everybody would know who he is. Um, but he turned me on to an attorney 
And I started pursuing it. I was going to sue them. And by the way, they screwed my son out of uh, 45, 35, 45 grand. And that really got me hot. That got me hot. That got me hot to screw my kid out of money because you're pissed off at me or whatever. Bad, 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 bad. So I, I went through the motions and I filed lawsuits and we did all that. But TNA, man, they were, they ghosted everybody. You couldn't serve anybody. You couldn't find anybody. People change their phone numbers. I mean, it was, by the time I got around to them, it was ridiculous. And that's when, you know, sale was happening and people were transferring and equity. And I mean, Billy Corgan was in the middle of shit. I mean, it was a, just a clusterfuck. And I started looking at my monthly legal bills and we had just gotten started. We hadn't even gotten to discovery yet. I'm going, wait a minute. I'm not that good at math, but I'm watching this legal ticker. I'm watching this go up and up and up and up and up. And we haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. In about another month, I'm going to be spending money. I'm going to be spending more money on legal fees that I'm going to be able to recover if I win in court. Yeah. And at that point, I just went, screw it. Now it's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't even think about it unless something like this comes up. I forgot all about it. I wish I would have stayed <laughs> forgotten about it. But, you know, maybe we get her on the show. Maybe, you know, who knows? Reach out to her. Maybe, maybe that'll, that'll be the catalyst for her to kind of re-engage with the community. And if there's anybody that can make her... There's anybody that can help her recognize, because she did do a lot of positive things. A lot. You know, let's, let's just talk about, let's play a little what if for a minute. What if TNA would have never been around? Right. What would Frankie Kazarian and Christianos, where would they have been able to, where would they have been able to pay their bills and feed their family for the years that they were with TNA? Maybe they would have been able to stay in the wrestling business. Maybe they wouldn't have. Because keep in mind, context is king here. The indie scene wasn't that hot back then as it was, you know, by 2015, 2017. You know, 2008, 2009, 2010, the indie scene was, you're going to make a living doing that. Not a good living. Um, there's a chance that AJ Styles would have been doing something else right now. Or, or Samoa Joe. Or some, definitely Samoa Joe. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, once upon a time, people thought Samoa Joe and CM Punk were going to be the next big things. And they really set Ring of Honor on fire in a time when Ring of Honor really needed a shot in the arm. And they sort of had different paths. One went to WWE and one went to Impact. And it felt like for a long time, Samoa Joe made the right call. And maybe CM Punk fumbled with that call. Because immediately, Joe's on TV and he's working with Kurt Angle. And of course, we know years later, Punk became, you know, one of the biggest stars in the world. And it's just, it's fun to look back and think about all the great stuff that did happen in TNA and all the guys who got opportunities like Rob Van Dam and Jeff Hardy, when seemingly, you know, their WWE days were behind them and other guys were introduced and, you know, Jay lethal was, was always working underneath with TNA, but eventually became ring of honor world champion. And he's made a, a very nice career for himself. So is Robert rude and, and, and James storm and just on and on and on. And I think sometimes it's unfair that people just jump to, oh, LOL, TNA. Okay. Maybe you didn't like some of the creative, but dude, you did a great service for an industry that we all love. I mean, if you're listening to this show, then you're, you're, you're an upper echelon, quote unquote, smart mark wrestling appreciation, 
I mean, you're, you're deep in the weeds here for you to be listening to an 83 weeks podcast. The people who listen to this show should be able to see past silly creative and understand the real investment that was made that created a lot of opportunity for a lot of people. And as odd as this is going to sound right now, because of the previous conversation, I'll defend Dixie here. Dixie was doing the best she could with what she had to work with and in the environment that she worked with then. The dynamic, you know, ask Bruce Pritchard sometime. I don't even know if he'll go. I I doubt he'll talk about it on the podcast because Bruce is pretty cool that way. But he, he saw a lot more of it than I did because of his role within TNA. I saw it on occasion. I heard it on the phone occasionally when I was on a conference call. The family dynamic was bizarre. I mean bizarre when it comes to Dixie's relationship with her parents, her brother, who was a big part of Panda Energy. It's a little, be careful what I say here, attorney for Panda. What was his name? I can't remember his name. Creed. This is a guy that showed up one day. This will give you, this this is public knowledge, so I'm, not treading anything ice here. This, this is when you know talent relations was a big issue. People getting paid was getting to be a big issue. Checks were in the mail that never showed up. Supposedly, things checks were sent out in FedEx that never showed up. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. Not Dixie's fault, by the way. Not Dixie's fault. Dixie didn't control the money. Dixie controlled zero money. Everything had to run through mom and dad, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. They were funding the company, I guess. That's the way it should be. But they weren't necessarily as supportive of the things that Dixie wanted to do as Dixie would have liked them to be. And that created all kinds of stress within the family. Dixie was doing the best she could with what she had to work with. So even when I become critical of Dixie, I always try to disclaim, I really liked Dixie. On a personal level, I really like Dixie. I really like her husband, Serge. He is a, you would love Serge. I don't know, have you met Serge? No. He is, talk about salt of the earth. He is the most unpretentious, likable, fun guy that I've hung around in a long time. So there's a lot of good qualities about Dixie and, and Serge, but she was doing the best she could with what she had to work with. And that was, I've said this a million times, when I get amped up and frustrated and I sound like I'm being critical of TNA or whatever, it's just missed opportunity. How often do you get an opportunity to launch a wrestling company, have a network like Viacom, Kevin K is no little deal. Yeah. Kevin K is the one that made the decision to buy Bellator. Now Viacom owns them, which is why Scott Coker and Bellator still exist today because they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had, had Viacom not acquired them. And, and, and Viacom, Kevin K had the same appetite for TNA. The same story could have been, could have existed with TNA. But because of all the other crap that was going on, it never happened. And to me, that is, 
Th that still hurts me. Not me personally, because I wouldn't have had any skin in the game. It would have been my company. But man, when you have an opportunity that's in your hands, people want to be a part of your company. Spike TV spent, oh, I'm going to say a million dollars. I think I'm right. Could be wrong. But if I'm wrong, it's damn close. With a big marketing campaign. You know what the response was from headquarters in Dallas? Well, that campaign sucks. Oh. Really? You got a television network that spent a million dollars putting together a big ad campaign to promote your brand because you're too fucking cheap to do it yourself. And then you bitch about it because it doesn't suit your taste. And oh, by the way, you don't know anything about the wrestling audience anyway, so you don't get to vote on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing because you have no basis to vote. You have no opinion that's worth more than 10 cents. And you're not even spending that to promote your own company. It was like, oh, that's ridiculous. That's a horrible campaign. Anyway, it, it didn't have anything to do with Dixie. It really didn't. So if she does get an opportunity, I hope everybody that's listening to us listens to you. And let's embrace her and appreciate what she did do. Because she did do a lot. It wouldn't have happened without her. The Carter family wouldn't have gotten involved in the wrestling business if it wasn't for their daughter, Dixie. As my friend Tyrus would say, enough said. This holiday season will undoubtedly be like no other. Families may not have the opportunity to be physically together due to COVID-19, social distancing, and financial restraints. Despite the global events that may keep us apart physically, Ancestry brings you closer to family, past and present, through your shared history. Ancestry is the family activity and gifting solution for this highly unusual 2020 holiday season. And I got to tell you, this is something my family has done for as many Thanksgivings as I can remember for as many Christmases as I can remember family from all over the country. would get together and inevitably we would start talking about what we've all discovered and it would create some fun conversations as we pass the Turkey. And if you can't be under one roof for the holidays, let me tell you, they figured out how to bring the whole family together with the gift of family history and ancestry. That's right. You can give your loved ones an ancestry gift membership to let them discover the fascinating people in their past or surprise them with ancestry DNA so they can uncover their origins. The holiday sale at ancestry is the perfect time to treat someone you love to a gift that connects them to family in new meaningful ways. And I feel like I should remind you that an ancestry DNA test can tell where your ancestors are from and ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees. Let you discover their unique stories. Don't miss the special holiday pricing on truly meaningful gifts during the holiday sale at ancestry. Head on over to our website. It's ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks to get your ancestry gift today. That's ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. And we thank ancestry for sponsoring the podcast. Of course, folks like ancestry make this podcast possible, but man, the family memories that my family has enjoyed for the past several holiday get togethers are all thanks to ancestry. So we thank them for sponsoring the podcast and for finding a way to bring families closer in a very weird 2020. Check it out. It's ancestry.com forward slash three weeks. Let's talk about it. We're finally here. 
boy, we did a longer preamble than normal an hour and a half and change deep. And we're, we're finally getting to the show TNA final resolution. Uh, the readers of the wrestling observer gave this 75.9% thumbs up 14.8% thumbs down 9.3% thumbs in the middle. Based on the way you started the show today, Eric, I think we've ruled out you giving this a thumbs up. Is this a thumbs down or a thumbs in the middle for you? Uh, I don't like the thumbs up or thumbs down thing. It's too broad, but I would say thumbs in the middle. If I have to stick to thumbs, if I get to pick numbers, I'd give it about a five and a half, maybe a six. Let's get into it. Our first match, Robert Rude and James storm. They're going to get a win over Inc. Inc., which is Shannon Moore and Jesse Neal. Uh, Meltzer actually liked it pretty well. He gave it three and a quarter stars. It's, uh, 10 minutes and 42 minutes, <laughs> 10 minutes and 42 minutes, 10 minutes and 42 seconds in a match to determine the top contenders for these tag straps crowd was hot here. Meltzer would say great performance here by rude. Whose offense looked good. Selling looked good and was always in the right place. Uh, Taz joked that Neil with his red spiked hair looked like the red rooster. Um, that's funny. I thought the same thing this morning as I was watching it, it looked uh, like Terry Taylor's illegitimate son beer money hits the DWI on Neil and rude pins him three and a quarter stars, pretty strong match to open the show. Uh, we both think the world is Shannon Moore, uh, Jesse Neal, more than capable performer. I don't know. Looking back for whatever reason, uh, I don't, I can't put my finger on it, but it feels like beer money is a, is a level up from them. Uh, and I don't know if it's because we weren't as invested in their characters. I mean, is it just because, Hey, they're crazy tattooed guys and do cool moves or why don't I feel in your opinion, more of a, a connection with ink, ink, two reasons, my opinion, the gimmick was horrible. It was just dated and it was, there might've been one and a half percent of the audience that would have thought that gimmick was cool. And when you create a gimmick and a character that's designed to appeal to such a small percentage of the audience that was into the punk thing, um, you're, you're, you're swimming upstream automatically add to that the lack of experience on Jesse's part. Jesse was green. He was fresh out of Devon and, and bully school. Um, he, he was what 12 months, 18 months, you know, out of the oven. Um, so that was part of it. You know, Shannon was phenomenal, but I, you know, as much as I love Shannon more and I do, you know, he's tight with my, my son, Garrett. I'm pretty tight with Shannon gave him a start in the business. Uh, think the world of him. He's really, you know, he's doing a lot of great things with his life right now. Um, but the gimmick that he loved that gimmick, that was him. And it just, I hated it. It, and it didn't connect with the audience. So I think when you combine, especially Jesse, now Shannon, Shannon could go. Um, he had a lot more experience than Jesse did. Jesse was still, and there's an awkwardness. I noticed it tonight, this morning when I was watching the show. There is a, <clears throat> a lack of fluidity, you know, when you've got somebody that's new and inexperienced in the ring. The, the timing is just a heartbeat off. Not a lot. It's not botched moves. And, and also the way, if you go back and watch this, you know, if you're listening to the show, watch the way Jesse carries himself in the ring in between move sets. Mm. He feels very awkward. You know, he, he didn't, he wasn't into himself, meaning 
not in an egotistical way. He wasn't into his character and he didn't feel comfortable enough in his character not to overcompensate. That's the best way to say it. And that's a telltale sign for me when I watch talent. So, I mean, here, here's, here's a different extreme. Watch Randy Orton. People say, well, he's been wrestling for 20 years, blah, blah. and that's true, <laughs> which is my point. You watch Randy Orton, there is not an ounce, there is not a millisecond of wasted motion. Everything he does means something. He's so fluid. He's like water going through a river over the rocks. He's just, it's just poetry and motion because he's so comfortable in his character because he's been doing it for so long and he has the natural talents and, and the God-given gift that a lot of people never have or never will have. Randy has it and the experience. Now you go to the other side of the spectrum. You've got Jesse Neal, who's maybe 12 or 18 months out of wrestling camp and hasn't really found himself yet as a character. And the way people like Jesse at that point in his career Overcompensate is an awkwardness, a physiological awkwardness when there's not. Now, if he's in a move, that's one thing. He could go through the move sets. Yeah, he can do a drop kick. He can do this. He can do that. Doing the move wasn't doing the moves. The execution wasn't his biggest challenge. His biggest challenge is feeling comfortable with his own character. I, uh, I had the pleasure of watching uh, wrestling with, with Sean Waltman once. We were actually watching all in uh, together at the show. And it was fun to watch wrestling with someone who knows, you know, everything there is to know about wrestling, if that's even possible, but you just hear people who worked with him over the years say, oh, he was the measuring stick for whether or not you were a good talent or not, or you could put it together. And we saw Christopher Daniels wrestle Stephen Amell, the Hollywood actor. And so it's, it was fun to watch that match in particular with Waltman because Waltman was able to say he knows all the moves but it's the stuff in between that you can tell he's not a full-time wrestler. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, everybody wants to learn the moves, but it's the stuff in between that makes you a really polished professional wrestler. And to hear him break that down for me was really pretty cool. And, and to now hear you sort of make the same analogy about Jesse Neal, who very similarly to Stephen Amell knew in his wrestling career, of course, Jesse Neal made this a real profession. I think Amell just did it here and there as a, as a one-off type of deal. But it is the stuff between the moves that, that makes a performance, right? It, it definitely is, especially when it comes to character. It's just, and, and, it, and it's even outside of the ring. You know, it's one of the reasons I think that so many talents today, performers, as great as they are in the ring, when you put a microphone in front of them, it just lets all of the air out of it. Because they're way more comfortable with move sets and execution and moves and all the physicality that they're pretty comfortable with, but they still don't believe in their own characters. It's, I, I often make these references and I'm sometimes I'm angry at myself when I get done doing it because I'm not trying to sound like I know more about something than I do. I'm not an actor. I never, I took acting classes, but that's doesn't matter here. Um, I've taken improv classes, quite a few of them actually over the years. And there's a point where it's like method acting. 
you, you have to believe you're the character. You can't play a wrestler. You can't play a tough guy. You can't play a nice guy. You can't play a bad guy. You have to believe you're a bad guy. You have to believe you're a nice guy. It, and if, and I know it sounds so simple, right? Well, just, just sit down and have a conversation with yourself and believe it. That's why there's great actors. And that's why there's people who wish they were some people can become a character. They can read a character on a piece of paper and they can find ways to make that character their own to the extent that it actually becomes them. Those are great actors. They're also great wrestlers, by the way, Randy Orton. And I keep using Randy because I can't think of anybody better than Randy Orton. I don't think anybody comes close to Randy Orton when it comes to what I'm talking about. Nobody. My opinion, subjective opinion, hate me for it if you will. Don't really care. But it takes time and talent and guidance. You have to learn how to do it. Somebody has to teach you how. And there's a lot of ways you can learn it. It's not like, you know, the Wizard of Oz is sitting in a trailer somewhere waiting for you to come knock on the door. There's a lot of places you could learn it. Unfortunately, I think in the WWE, that train is moving so fast and the stops happen. It's like being on a train in Japan. So it's like, stop, shoom, stop, shoom. You know, it's, there's fast trains, but there's thousands of stops along the way. You know, and I, that's, to me, that's what WWE is like. You know, we hear the phrase drinking water out of a fire hose. Well, that's true for everybody in WWE, including the talent. So you don't really have a chance to learn much other than what you do every time you're there. Um, but that's the difference between superstars, legends, a guy like The Undertaker who just retired. People are still, you know, crying about it on social media. And I understand why I'm not being cynical. Um, a Hulk Hogan, a Ric Flair, a Roddy Piper, another great example. Roddy believed. Randy Savage believed. Goldberg believed. Goldberg, I, I've got more quarters in my pocket than Goldberg had movesets. And I'm wearing sweatpants. Here, look, see? Sweatpants. And I've got more change in my sweatpants than Bill Goldberg has moves. But it didn't matter because he believed he was that guy when he came through there and he snorted fire and he spit smoke. Guess what? He believed in that moment he was that character. And the audience believed it too. It's awesome to watch when it happens. So I, I hope if anybody's listening to this that's in the business today, especially if you're young or you're aspiring to get into the business, focus as much on learning how to become the character you're playing as you do on your drop kick or your arm drag or your hurricane rod or whatever the fuck it is you're going to do. Because if you don't have a character that you believe, there's no way the audience is going to believe it. And if the audience doesn't believe it, you're going to be future endeavored before you know it. So come on, explore, you'll find it. Sorry. Let's talk about, uh, beer money for a moment before we move on. I realize we're on the first match, but 
I'm fascinated by beer money because we know Robert Rude is, or Bobby Rude is going to show up and, and, and have a decent start to his WWE run. He does real well in NXT, gets called up to the main roster. looks like he's got a lot of steam. And then for whatever reason, now he's just sort of there. Uh, but a very talented performer going back to almost the very beginning of TNA with team Canada. And, and I'm proud to see that, you know, he got these bigger opportunities and, and, and I'm sure made a great living for a long time, but James storm is the one that sticks out to me. Like this team is, is a real credit to TNA. They, they're going to become uh, a big deal here. Fans are really with them. They like the gimmick and James storm. It feels like had a cup of coffee with NXT, but. Uh, and maybe, uh, during the pandemic or before the pandemic happened, there was a report out there that Paul Heyman wanted to do something with him and, and he's, he's done well with the NWA and he's done well with impact, but it feels like for whatever reason, he's maybe not going to get that WWE run and hindsight. Was it a mistake for beer money to, or maybe they did, did beer money try to make a run in WWE? I mean, I, I think over the years I've heard rumors that. Flair was high on him and tried to get him hooked up with Johnny Ace. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out, but Bobby Roode made his own way there. James storm, not so much. And the listeners to this show know that James storm is a very capable performer and very familiar with his work, but didn't really get a shot there. How do you reconcile that? I, I can't, um, I, I really can't, you know, J- James, He's going to hear about this. He's going to be hot or his feelings are going to be hurt, but I don't mean it to be disrespectful. I just have to be honest. He was hot and cold. Now you, you, as as a fan, when you, when you watch, you know, beer money matches and you watch James storm, you won't notice it the way people behind the scenes notice it. But for example, when the show started today, and I've said this before, so this isn't new, but when the show started today, I knew who was going over. I knew which team was going over without remembering the story. I didn't remember the match. I didn't remember what was going on. The first thing I did was watch James Storm as he was walking to the ring, as making his entrance. I could tell by the level of energy with, with no recall whatsoever who was going to win that match. Now, part of it was obvious too, because it was, I guess you could say that was obvious because it was a young team against an established team, but James could be, he wore his emotions on his sleeves. That's the best way to say it. And when things weren't going to go, going to go his way creatively in the match, you knew it before the bell ever rang. You knew it. Bobby Roode, not so much. Not at all. James Storm wore it on his sleeve. And people like Johnny Ace, I'm, I'm going to throw myself into it because I noticed it not right away in TNA, but as I got to know James a little bit better, I started seeing it. He'd get boo-boo face. You'd hear the phrase. you know, He'd get boo-boo face if he wasn't going to go over, if he was doing a job. I just didn't like it. And that's not a it's not a characteristic that you want to carry around as part of your reputation. If you want to go to a place like WWE. Now, I don't know that that was the issue or, or if that's what kept him back. I don't know. It's the only thing I can think of because he certainly got a great look. 
I've seen you. I've been so high on James Storm in the past when his head's on straight and he's he's focused and he's he's not allowing himself to get you know off track because things aren't going the way he thought they should go. Amazing performer and a great character. And oh, by the way, could knock the hell out of a promo. Here's a guy that does believe, by the way. Yeah. Maybe a little too much. <laughs> Maybe that's why when things aren't going to go the way he wants them to go, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. But certainly has all the freaking tools. And I mean, a nice his guy. Promos, his promos are awesome, Conrad. I mean, he has, he has the capacity to deliver some outstanding promos. And he has a unique look. Uh, and, and he works hard. His matches are good. But most importantly to me, like I've had the pleasure to meet him. He's a really nice guy. Oh, he's the best. Come on. I mean, he and my son, you know, Garrett are friends. This is why it's hard for me to sometimes to be honest about things, but you guys will all see through it or hear through it if I don't. Um, There's so many great things about James Storm that it's hard to figure out why he didn't break through, but he's, you know, hanging out. Are you kidding me? I I love spending time with James. You may not want to spend time with me now, but I have in the past that he's just an easy guy to be around. He makes you laugh. He's fun. He doesn't take anything too seriously. Doesn't walk around with chip on his shoulder trying to prove anything. He's just a good guy. If you're looking for a special gift for someone this holiday season, something really unique and personal, man, we've got a great idea for you. Of course, we're talking about paintyourlife.com. You can have an original painting by a world-class artist done by hand from any photo at an affordable price. Here's how this works. If you want to give a truly meaningful gift, you start by going to paintyourlife.com. Check out how easy this is. You can send any picture of kids, yourself, family, a special place, a special pet. You can even combine photos into one painting. They even offer a compilation portrait at Paint Your Life. So you can bring family members together who never had a chance to meet. So maybe if your grandkids never met their grandparents, boom, you're good to go. You can even create a portrait of the whole family without the need for everyone to be there. How cool is that? You get to work with a team of world-class artists, pick the right one for you and work with them until every detail is perfect. By the way, to get started, we're talking less than five minutes and you get this portrait in about three weeks. It's meaningful. It's personal. It can be cherished forever. And it makes the perfect holiday gift for someone you love or for yourself. I have given this multiple occasions. I'm doing it again this year. I can't recommend it enough. This is a home run gift for someone special in your life. If you want to give a truly meaningful and personal gift that they'll never get rid of and never forget who gave it to them, it doesn't get better than paintyourlife.com. And at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word ERIC to 64000. That's ERIC to 64000. Text E-R-I-C to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Let's talk about the next match. Um, We've got Tara and Mickey James, by the way, uh, Tara, we all know from her WWE run as Victoria, Mickey James, probably one of the more underrated female performers of this generation. This is a false count anywhere match. So I have a feeling you didn't really like this. 
but they are doing some, some big stuff, uh, guardrail spots, some really hard chops, a missile drop kick. They're brawling on the floor and get backstage. Eventually, uh, James jumps off a dumpster with a loose that has press. They go in the men's bathroom. Uh, of course, uh, there's some plants in there. There's a guy taking a whiz another guy taking a slam. Uh, so there's some, some funny stuff in there, but I, you know, as entertaining as it is for me and Meltzer gave it two and a half stars, by the way, uh, I, I have a feeling you probably didn't love it or maybe you did, uh, because it was more, it did have a comedic element to it, uh, but they go 10 and a half minutes, false count anywhere. Tara gets the win, uh, referee Jackson James counts three. What'd you think watching this one back for the first time in 10 years? I hated it more than the first time I saw it live. Uh, and, and I guess, again, why did I hate it? Because it's a missed opportunity. You've got two amazing talents in Mickey James and Tara. These two could go before there was a women's division anywhere where talent could go because they were all tits and ass in WWE at this point. You know, they, they were arm candy and fluff and divas and panty matches and whatever. Um, Tara and Mickey James could go. And you put two amazing performers like they both were and are, and you put them out, you know, outside of the ring you're taking away any opportunity to see a lot of that great stuff because it just looks like garbage. You know, you can't do the things physically. You can't execute moves that are as fun to watch, as dynamic in a safe manner outside of the ring as you can inside of the ring. You're reduced to brawling. Wrestling brawls suck. They suck. They all suck. The only thing that, that that keeps them from becoming massive suckage is because if you produce them properly, you can camouflage the suckage. You can have cameras. It's called ENG if you're in the TV business, electronic news gathering. So you got your cameraman are running around with the cameras, and there's a vibration and it's shaky, and they're moving trying to get the scene, and it's like you know trying to capture a news event. You know you're shooting over the top of each other and around each other. And the process of moving that camera all around and trying to get in tight allows you to camouflage a lot of shit. But when you've got a set, like we saw on this show, you're out in the backstage area of, of a production lot. There's no real people around. There's nothing really going on. It's a vacant fucking lot. And you're, you, you can't camouflage anything. And you have these two phenomenal talents that can execute. They have great timing. They're great characters. They're tough as hell. And they're brawling. You know, bra wrestling brawls look like really bad bar fights. And I, I just, again, it's wasted opportunity. Now, if they would have fought outside of the ring, done a little thing, you know, back in the backstage area, brawled for a little bit of time, I can see it and move it back to the ring. And then maybe it ends up in a bathroom eventually. Cause that was the Vince Russo payday. Um, don't get me started. I've talked enough about that idiot, but if, if your if your dream, if your aspiration on that show is to have two women wrestling in a men's bathroom, while one of them is taking a leak and the other's taking a dump, if that's your idea of entertainment, 
don't make them wrestle backstage on a backstage lot that looks so sterile. There's nothing going on back there. Yeah, you're doing big bumps off crazy shit, but it looks like crap. Be objective. Be honest with yourself. Is it really fun to watch? It's, it's you know, it's like, holy shit. Well, I can't believe they're doing that. But it, you don't get sucked into it. It's not believable, by the way. Bra wrestling brawls don't look believable. They're throwing punches. You know, they're hitting him with each other in the back with their forearms. I'm sorry. It doesn't fucking hurt. I would let... I would let Roman Reigns pound on my back with his forearm while I was drinking a beer. <laughs> not real. It's not real. It doesn't look real. You know what else doesn't look real? This is another thing that gets me all the time. And I, you know, I've kind of forgotten it. It's like pain. You know, when you've, you know, you've, you, you broke your leg when you were a kid, you know, you know, you remember that you broke your leg, but you don't remember the pain. That's how the brain works. So you just get past it all and you move on and you still play football or ride your skateboard, whatever the fuck it is you do that caused you to break your leg in the first place. But the more I go back and I watch wrestling so that we can recap this stuff, the more I ask myself in a very animated way in a room all by myself, there's no one listening to me. I'm screaming at myself. Why in the hell do these people crawl up onto the second or top turnbuckle while they're both up there setting each other up, hitting each other with their forearms that you couldn't crack a fucking egg with. You could not crack eggs with those forearms. Nobody's believing it. It all the things that you did up until that moment that made me believe what you're doing was real. You just unplugged me. You just disconnected the cord because you do. I know you're setting up a big move, but it looks so ridiculous. How many times have you seen some guy sitting on the top turnbuckle while his opponent is crawling up that turnbuckle, trying to get into the position to do an offensive move. You could eat a fucking cherry pie in the time that it takes to get from the beginning of that move to the end of that move. You could bake the pie and eat the pie in that amount of time. Sorry. I love you, Eric. Where do we, how do we end up talking about cherry pies? I don't know, man. You know, very recently I asked you about a monster's ball match and you told me about a stinky fish you discovered in 1974. It's just, you know, Lutefisk. Just... <laughs> Lutefisk. <laughs> scarred me for life. I know, but uh, so Eric, what'd you think of the monster's ball concept? Let me tell you about 1974. There was the smelly fit. I had this friend who was really sweet. <laughs> He's super Swiss. So anyway, he loved this stinky fish. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm asking about abyss. What the fuck has happened? So I don't know how we get where we get. I just know that's the charm of 83 weeks. Old man yells at cloud. You're like grandpa Simpson every now and again. And we love you for it. I don't know if I like that. Uh, it's did great. You see, did you see a tweet? It was about a week ago or so where some guy said, Hey, I showed my mother a picture of you from 1992, and you, she, she said you look like Pierce Brosnan, and he said, you handsome son of a bitch. <laughs> I told him, yeah, but I'm over with moms. No, you I are. I said I'm, I'm over with grandmothers is, is about where I'm at right now. So the Grandpa Simpson thing is kind of cutting a little deep here right now. Be a little careful with that one. Well, here's the thing. You may be in your 60s, but you could still pull in your 40s. Like, I'm just saying, there, there's, there's some... Some housewife smoking a Newport out there who'd love to go one on one with the great one. Just saying. I've had my opportunities. Let's put it that way. 
Let's. Uh, I could crack a thirty or two if I put my mind to it. Hey, let's. Oh, I'm sure of that. Uh, let's talk about the bathroom spot. This feels like Vince McMahon. He loved bathroom humor. We know that, but we also saw back in WCW some pretty entertaining false count anywhere Sullivan Benoit moments in a bathroom of all places. Uh, who was a big proponent of? Hey, let's get this in the bathroom. Is this Vince Russo or does somebody else think what if, because it is a, a kind of a fun moment. No, it's Russo. It's a hundred percent Russo w- women's matches were a hundred percent Russo. Nobody else had any creative input that I was aware of. That was Vince love writing and producing the women for whatever reason. Um, no, that was all him. Let's talk about Robbie. Uh, no, by the way, if they would have fought into a woman's restroom, yeah, whatever. But it had to be a, a men's room. Oh, and it had to be a guy taking a dump, and it had to be a guy taking a leak. And that's where it lost me. It's just like juvenile humor for the sake of juvenile humor. Well, that, listen, that works for me. Every now and again, a little juvenile humor works for me. I mean, we were talking about drawing hand turkey dicks on Tony's show last week. So it is what it is. Uh, Robbie E is going to keep the X Division title, beating Jay Lethal by DQ in a match with Cookie. That's right. Cookie in a cage above the ring, the old shark cage gimmick that JJ Dillon made famous. And well, maybe he didn't make it famous, but it's the first one I remember. Anyway, they call this cage, the shark cage. And we've got Becky Bayless, uh, here as cookie. Of course, she is a snooky ripoff. Robbie E and her are the Jersey shore contingent. Uh, when cookie tries to run away, shark boy shows up and throws her in. Uh, Meltzer would say she wasn't hung anywhere near 25 feet above the ring. Uh, actually she was to the side of the ring, but whatever. I like the idea of, since we know that this is supposed to be called a shark cage, that shark boy was here. Maybe we're hitting ourselves over the, the head with the silliness. Uh, but the whole concept of a Jersey shore thing is a little silly. Um, I didn't hate it, but I bet you did. We should mention after the match cookies parading around the ring. Like, uh, she was the deal shark boy comes out. Uh, she slaps him twice. He kicks her in the gut, gives her a stunner two and a quarter stars. Uh, but the DQ happens, I guess we should say, because, uh, Hebner saw lethal use the spray, the hairspray and it calls for the DQ. So Robbie E retains the X title cookies involved shark boys involved. Oh my. What'd you think? Uh, you, you're right. I hated it with a passion. Um, here's why I hated it with a passion. Number one, X division. What does it mean? What does it represent? What differentiates it? What is its unique selling proposition? It's USP. If you will, what is it? What makes that X division so special? The presentation and the athleticism that it should contain not taking a thing away from Robbie or, or Jay lethal. This match wasn't designed to showcase their talents. They did a great job for what they had to work with and what they were doing in the theme of the match, but it was silliness, silliness in my opinion, did nothing to help define or enhance the perception of the X division, which was by the way, for those of you that haven't heard this podcast before, when asked, what is the X division? What are the rules? Well, the rules are, there are no rules. Well, how do you define who's in the X division? 
The way you define an X division champion or X division uh, contestant is the way you would describe any wrestling performer. Really? So basically what you're saying is it doesn't mean a damn thing. No, it's the X division. It's TNA's X division. But yeah, but what does, you get the point. Now you've got an X division freaking gimmick match that isn't even a decent gimmick match. And I think they did the shark cage because it was shark week and they could get shark boy for a hundred dollars a shot. That was the whole creative ideation of that match. Wait a minute. It's shark week. Oh, hey, anybody got shark boys number? What does he charge us? A hundred bucks. Okay. Let's get him. And we'll have this match. It was horrible. And, and then to make matters worse, even if, Look, I know I get animated. I know I get emotional about gimmick matches and things like the X Division, which made absolutely no sense. They couldn't even make shit up. They couldn't even make something up. That's how bad it was. But they put all the heat on the referee. What good does that do you? What good does that do the, the, the guys in the match to put the heat on the referee? I don't know. To me, wow. this is what Meltzer would call, a, or not Meltzer, but Bruce would call a let me up match. I like that. I think it had a spot. I just think it's probably on the wrong spot on the card to do this right after we had the whole bathroom. I think if it was a different spot here, it could have worked. Maybe put it between Van Dam and Rhino and, and Doug Williams and AJ uh, just to break it up a little bit. Let's talk about that Van Dam match though. It's a first blood match, Van Dam and Rhino, lots of weapons, lots of brawling. Meltzer would say it was really good and great heat. He gave it three and a half stars. He would write Rhino was biting early, trying to open RVD up. He's going to suplex him on the ramp. He's going to use a gore. The crowd's going to start chanting for tables, but none happen. We do a, a frog splash. We go for a garbage can shot, but Rhino's going to kick him low and DDT him. And uh, the finish would see a Van Daminator into a garbage can lid onto Rhino's face. It doesn't bust him open. But a van terminator into a garbage can gets the job done. When Rhino comes up bloody, it's over. I know you hate these style matches, uh, yet another gimmick match, but they had a lot of heat, a lot of hot spots. The crowd was hot for it. Even though it may not have been to your taste, I think we can both agree the crowd was into it. Crowd was into it. Um, van Dam and Rhino both did a phenomenal job. I could have done without the tight shot of Rhino selling the blood at the very end. It was too much. Uh, that w- that would have been a less is more. I would have shown it because that was the premise of the match, right? It was a first blood match. So you got to acknowledge it. But when you oversell it, it becomes less real to me. That's me kind of as a director, producer. Um, I would have I would have been a little judicious, a little more judicious with the amount of time I would have spent watching rhino sell the blood beyond that I, for what it was not my cup of tea but that doesn't matter it advanced the story i mentioned this right at the beginning of the show it was a good story and you give me a gimmick match with a good story i'll buy it may not be what i would prefer but i'll still be interested and i'll still buy into it i bought into this one because it had story Let's talk about the next match. 
another guilty pleasure of mine and yours. We both love Doug Williams. We both love AJ Styles. And man, they get plenty of time here, and it's a four star match. Uh, Doug Williams pins AJ in 14 minutes and 49 seconds to win the TV title. Meltzer would say that fans weren't really into Williams as a face, but dude, they're, they're going to be hot for this. There's some really fun stuff here. Um, I, I can't, I can't put over how big the chaos theory suplex on the floor was. The crowd goes absolutely bananas. Styles barely beats the count to get in the ring. And then Doug uses the styles clash on AJ styles. So he beat him with his own finisher. That tells a great story. Meltzer would call it a humiliation pin, four stars, really some good stuff. AJ styles is proving here that he's one of the best that ever did it. And Doug Williams, man, if that guy was born 10 years later, there's no telling what he'd be doing. What'd you think? Uh, interesting. Was it you or were you referencing Meltzer when you said William, the audience wasn't buying Williams as a face? I think that was Meltzer. That's directly from the observer. You know why they weren't buying Williams as a face? Because they were still way too invested as, as in AJ as a baby face. Yeah. You didn't have any heat. Heat is life, brothers and sisters. <laughs> heat is life. Heat is life. Embrace the life is to embrace the heat. AJ didn't have any, which is why the crowd didn't get with Doug. It had nothing to do with Doug. It had to do with AJ. AJ overshadowed Doug as a character. AJ was a bigger baby. AJ had more residual babyface heat, even though he was playing the role of a heel. Go back to my earlier comments about believing your character. AJ had more residual babyface equity than Doug Williams did as a baby face. And that's why they didn't get with Doug had nothing to do with Doug had everything to do with AJ. So there, Dave, what'd you think of, uh, AJ being willing to, to not only lose, but lose to his own finish. That's pretty cool. I think that is a perfect example of why AJ Styles is making the probably multi-million dollars he's making in WWE today because he's a pro. Ain't no probably. He is. Uh, He is a pro, and he deserves every nickel that he makes and then some. But that's why. Because he's a pro. You saw it here 10 years earlier. He's a pro. Didn't bitch. Didn't whine, didn't question to my recollection. If he did, it was in a professional manner and it was discreet in a one-on-one type of an environment. He certainly didn't bitch to me or I'd remember it. And AJ didn't really bitch. questioned. He tried to understand. He wanted to know why, which is part of getting into the character, by the way. Got to kind of know why you're being asked to act the way you're asked to act or be the character you're asked to be. If you don't know why... Which is a really big part of it, by the way. Take a little note, everybody that's currently writing. Just ask yourself every once in a while when you're laying out a story. Well, why would this person do this? And if you know, if you can, if you have to bullshit your way through it, like Vince Russo used to do, it's probably not that good of an idea. But if if the answer to the reason or the question why is like fluorescent in front of you, like you, you spray painted it in fluorescent green paint. And the answer is that obvious. It's probably a great story, but AJ would ask why 
but he wouldn't bitch and he'd go out and he'd execute his ass off, which is why he's making millions of dollars a year. Well, let's talk about that the, the fact that he's given that and the fact that he's gifted beyond belief, but <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's a given Chris Saban, Alex Shelley, the motor city machine guns. They're going to be here defending their TNA tag titles against the young bucks. Uh, man, you want to talk about a barn burner. We just recently covered bound for glory as a bonus show from this same year. So this is sort of their WrestleMania bound for glory. It's available now at adfreeshows.com. Of course, we were originally going to drop it on the main feed that week. I had internet issues, so we, we still got the show up. It's over at adfreeshows.com. Not just the audio, but the video, I guess we should mention that Eric, you can actually see us talking about this and see some of the facials and reactions when I'm reading Meltzer and Eric gets a little animated. You can check all of that out over at adfreeshows.com. And there's a ton of cool bonus stuff that we're dropping over there. Uh, and of course, not just Eric's show, but all of my other podcasts, including some incredible one-on-one -on -one stuff, like the interview we did with Jim Hurd, et cetera, et cetera. So free cheap plug here, shill and adfreeshows.com. But we talked just recently about generation me, which is what the young bucks were called here and their match that they had with the motor city machine gun. So this is a return match, but it's a gimmick match that we're calling full metal mayhem. And I guess in other words, anything metal is legal. So it's like a TLC sort of, uh, but Meltzer would say these guys did a million well-timed unique spots, but it felt more like a video game than a wrestling match. Still the crowd loved it. There are some crazy spots that we can't even adequately describe, uh, including one where they, they try to climb the ladder to get the belts and they realize the belt is hung too high. So what do they do? They start stacking tables and ladders together. Oh my, uh, three and three quarter stars. They go 16 and a half minutes. It's a fun performance, but you sort of alluded to at the beginning of the show that you thought it was just weird. Yeah, it was. And, and by the way, I'm going to go back and watch because I may be incorrect and I will be the first to admit when I'm wrong most of the time, but the first time, who was it that went up? One of the motor city machine guns went up for the very first time, reached up for the belt and touched it and realized that in order for this match to play out the way we wanted it to play out. And they had to stack tables and chairs and multiple ladders and stand on encyclopedias or whatever else they tried to do. He couldn't touch. The, he couldn't touch. He could have actually grabbed the belt. The match could have been over. And it was so obvious to me when I watched it this morning. And which is why I'm going, wait a minute. Why don't you just grab a freaking belt? Match would be over. And then they start bringing in extra ladders. I go, wait a minute. All the ladders are the same height. What good is that going to do you? We can use the ladders on the ends to kind of bookend the ladder in the middle because it was kind of wobbly. Okay, maybe that's it. No, they're going to build scaffolding. It was like watching a strip mall go up in Albuquerque. They go up like in 20 minutes 
Arizona, strip mall, boom. You drive to work in the morning, there's a vacant lot. You come home at night around 6, 6.30, there's a strip mall there where a vacant lot used to be. That's how fast this shit goes up. That's what it reminded me of. There's scaffolding, there's, 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 there's ladders, there's tables, there's chairs, all so they could reach a belt that they didn't need all that stuff to reach in the first place. But probably what happened is they laid out the match and they wanted to do all these gimmicks, right, with multiple ladders and chairs and have to stand on the table to get to the belt. <laughs> they, first, one of the Motor City machine guns went up there and realized, shit, I can grab the belt. So we got to fake it. Right. And he came right back down the ladder. It's like, what the hell? So it, it just was silly um, from that perspective. Now, maybe the audience, you know, that watched it on pay-per-view didn't watch it because I tend to watch things differently than the audience watches them. So that's okay. Maybe I'm being too cynical here or being too um, scrutinizing. Could be. Uh, I, in fact, I agree. I probably am. Um, beyond that, it was just too many gimmicks for the sake of gimmicks with a bunch of guys who didn't. Now, I like some of them, by the way. Yeah. Some of the stuff I saw were like, holy shit, I've never seen that before. Whoa, I've never seen anybody do that. I probably said that to myself three or four times, maybe more, during the course of that match. So it, it wasn't as nearly as offensive to me. It wasn't offensive at all. It was fun to watch in many respects. But it just got to be too much, and too much that made zero sense. Next up, we've got Abyss versus Pope D'Angelo De Niro. It's a casket match. Yes. Another gimmick match. They go 11 minutes and 50 seconds. Um, it's two stars. Meltzer says, uh, abyss slammed Pope over the top rope onto the casket, which he landed back first on. This is a bad idea as it was similar to the spot that nearly ended Shawn Michaels career at the 98 Royal rumble. Each man would get in the other, get the other in the casket, but couldn't close the lid. Eventually abyss did the black hole slam and De Niro hit his DD. E, but neither resulted in getting the other in the casket. Abyss ended up in the casket before Pope could close the lid. Abyss punches through the casket, bloodying up his hand. He could have easily broken the hand. As the hand broke free, he snatched Pope's balls and squeezed. Uh, he would say that was a sick one, but Pope didn't actually have to sell it very long. He was back and clotheslined Abyss over the top. Both ended up on the apron and abyss kicked Pope low and then choke slammed him into the casket and shut the lid two stars. So casket matches can be challenging. I'm sure I'm not a professional wrestler, but there's only so many ways you can figure out how to get in there. They tried to do some innovative stuff in here that I kind of dug. Uh, I know you hate gimmick matches, but within the confines of, if we're going to do a casket match, let's try to do something different. I think they did a good job with that. Meltzer gave it two stars. We both like Pope. We both like, well, you didn't like the abyss character, but you liked the performer behind abyss. I didn't hate this nearly as bad as I'm sure you did. I didn't hate the match itself. I mean, the match, the, the effort, the execution, the layout of the match, all of the above, you know, checked all the boxes. Uh, I just, I'm sorry. I can't get over the, if, why would you undertaker does casket matches? WWE does casket matches, has done casket matches better than anybody else will ever be able to do them because they've done them at the highest level, WrestleMania and other things. Why would you do that? 
why would you allow yourself to be compared to what the WWE does? Right. Why would you intentionally do that to yourself? It, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to get over that. That's the, the business of the wrestling business overcoming my wrestling fandom. You know, I, I guess if I was, if I had never been in the wrestling business and I watched this match, I'd probably feel differently than I feel right now. I tend to watch everything from a different perspective. And my perspective of, as someone who's laying out a television show, or in this case, a pay-per-view, and I'm trying to come up with the most compelling way I can to grow my audience and to grow my brand, why would I do something that I know I'm not only going to pale in comparison, I'm going to look like I'm standing on a street corner pissing myself. That's how bad this looked to me. Not because of the execution. The talent did a fine job. The match layout was pretty good for what it was, but why would you do it in the first place? It's such a bad idea. Well, speaking of bad ideas, uh, we got Jeff Jarrett in a submission match with Samoa Joe next. That's a bad idea. Uh, they go nine minutes and four seconds before the match. Gunner and Murphy attack Joe's left leg and they use the baton shot to the ankle. And then, uh, well, they have a hokey rule here. Meltzer would say that. They could fight anywhere, but the submission would only count in the ring. Of course, Joe's going to start the match limping and selling the attack, but eventually he comes back. Um, they end up outside the ring and Joe gets the choke on and Jarrett's tapping, but it doesn't count because it wasn't in the ring. And Meltzer says, boy, was that lame. It's one of those deals where being creative works against you. It's creative, but it's the shit nobody wants to see. Eventually Joe put Jarrett in a Fujiwara arm bar and he taps, but he's in the ropes. So again, it doesn't count. And at this point, the fans start chanting bullshit. Joe hits the muscle buster and gets the choke in the middle. But of course, Gunner and Murphy come out. Joe lets go of the choke to take him out, decking Murphy, giving Gunner an enziguri. Jarrett comes from behind, grabs the ankle lock and Joe taps. Meltzer would say plainly people didn't like this star and a half. Yeah. Overbooked a little bit. You know, we, we got Jarrett tapping multiple times, but it doesn't count. It doesn't count. He's cheating to win. I understand they're trying to get the heat on Jarrett, but my goodness, this is a little overbooked in hindsight. What say you? The match was overbooked. I kind of like the idea. I love Jarrett as a chicken shit heel. Yep. And I'm pretty sure this match was designed to set up Kurt and Jarrett. Yes. With the ankle lock. So it, it was a transitional match, meaning it was a match that was leading to a bigger story. It was an act two, if you will, leading into an act three, act three being Jarrett and Kurt Angle. So, but the match itself was overbooked. It, I agree with Dave on this one. Um, less would have been far more. In fact, less would have been way better only because I think the heat would have been more genuine. It went from heat, and Jarrett does a good job here of being that chicken shit heel. You could tell Jarrett doesn't believe what he's pitching to the audience, right? But in a, but in the way you want to believe that, right? You know he's lying. You know he's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And that's a good thing in this case. This isn't the case of a young talent not understanding how to become a character. This is the case of a good heel doing what a good heel should do to make the audience hate him. The problem with it was... Because it was overbooked, you went from heat to uh, 
You went from the kind of heat that makes money to the kind of heat that just doesn't. Um, it had the match been a little shorter and there would have been a less gaga. And if, if, if Jeff could have been a little bit more of a chicken shit heel, he was, he did a good job in the beginning, especially, but had he been able to kind of carry that chicken shit heel through the match a little bit more and given Joe more, um, I think it would have been more effective in the long run. Next up, we've got Jeff Hardy retaining the TNA title over Matt Morgan in 12 and a half minutes. Meltzer would say three straight heel wins to end the show. Morgan asked for a no DQ match before the match, but Anderson didn't agree. Anderson vowed to call it down the middle. And then when the match started, Anderson told Jeremy Borash to announce it was a no DQ. Hardy was booed by the impact fans early, but it ended up becoming dueling chance with both Morgan, uh, getting some cheers. Of course, women and kids are for Hardy dudes are for Morgan. Um, it's okay for me star and a half, but I didn't love it. Uh, of course you're involved here. You're going to come out with a referee named Jackson James. Wonder whatever happened to him. And, uh, makes Meltzer would say this made no sense at all. Given that Morgan had just hit his move. Bischoff then posted Anderson, who was bleeding from the back of the head. Even after all that Hardy kicked out, Morgan went to choke, slam him on a chair, but Hardy used a low blow and a twist of fate on the chair for the pin star and a half. It feels like a disappointing main event. Maybe it's too heavy on story. Maybe they're not buying Matt Morgan. Maybe they didn't want to boo Jeff Hardy. There's a lot to armchair quarterback, but there was some really good stuff on this show. Uh, the main event was probably not the best part of it though. What'd you think? hundred percent agree with your last two points. Um, crowd was not into the Matt. Unfortunately was not over as a baby face. Just wasn't not enough to matter. And the audience did not want to boo Jeff. You got some Pavlov's dog shit going on there. Couple, you know, you got a small audience. They're all smart. They come to the same show every week. They all know the, they all know their role. So you'll get a little bit, but it's not real. It's Pavlovian heat. It ain't real, folks. Just because they boo you doesn't mean they hate you. Trust me. There's a big, big difference, and you saw it play out right here. Nothing wrong with the match. And by the way. The little bit of confusion on Dave's part, which I understand it was designed to be that way to a degree. This was setting up Jackson James as a heel and revealing him as my son. Yeah. And I, excuse me, not setting him up as a heel, but revealing him as my son eventually because he wasn't doing the things I wanted him to do. So it, it was that aspect of this was a part of a bigger story going forward. I'm not sure where, what stage we were in at this point, but when I started getting physical with Garrett, it was the beginning of revealing who he was at this point. Nobody knew he was my son, um, by design, but yeah, the, the biggest issue is, you know, I'm not picking on Matt here, but you know, we TNA Matt himself didn't do enough to get himself over as a baby face. The audience just didn't buy him. He was big. He was imposing good looking guy. Promos were on a scale of one to 10 a five, five and a half. Most of the time, Capable of doing more every once in a while with some effort, but for the most part, he was kind of a baby face. And when you're in there with Matt Hardy, who's just recently turned heel, that's just not enough. 
the best match poll for the readers of the wrestling observer. They thought it was Doug Williams and AJ styles. I'm sure we both agree, right? Yep. Uh, they thought the second best match was machine guns versus generation. Me. They thought the worst match was Jeff Jarrett, Samoa Joe, probably just because of the overbooking, not because they're not capable performers, but I tend to agree. Uh, it was the match I enjoyed the least just because of that. What about you? Uh, worst match for me was, was Mickey and Tara. Oh, I like that one. Come on. Just, uh, just because of miss, missed opportunity mm-hmm. that nothing to do with those two, nothing to do with the, those two, but that match, the way it was laid out, just didn't even come close to giving us an opportunity to see what either woman and the two of them together were capable of doing. So for that reason, I give it the worst match on the card. Hang in there, folks. I know the show is technically over, but we're not done. There's a couple of big things we want to hit on. Then we're going to get some fan questions. We should also mention that next week, we're going to be back doing the December 5th, 2005 raw. We're going to do it. Watch along style. Um, it, it happened at the North Charleston Coliseum in North Charleston, North or South Carolina. This is the famous episode where Eric Bischoff is fired. Uh, there's lots of other fun stuff on the show. Triple H and Tajiri, Carlito tagging with angle against Sean and Shelton. Uh, Chavo working with, uh, Lance Cade, uh, and then a bunch of stuff going on, uh, for the old, uh, tag team championship. But the big thing, the big reason we're watching it, it's just fun to watch Eric Bischoff get fired. Isn't it? Join me next week here on 83 weeks. So uh, here's the thing. There's two big things I want to touch on here. Uh, I think this is the second worst pay-per-view buy rate of the year. There's only 9,000 buys. Uh, so this is anemic to say the least, but it's actually up from the prior year's final resolution, which only did 7,500 buys, but man, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around 9,000 buys. I mean, this is a, a, a major promotion that has major TV clearances and 9,000 people are buying it. Bro, bro, bro. That's a 25% increase, bro. Come on. Think about that. That's a 25% increase, bro. I'm doing great. I should get a raise. Why do we need Bischoff and Hogan here? Bro, bro, come on. Here's my thing. I just use numbers and numbers lie, but it's the shits. It's just the shits. You guys were, were, were not necessarily making major bank on the house. You know, I mean, it's the impact. Like none. Like how about none? So there's that. <laughs> but also too, if you just take 9,000. And you multiply it by 29 bucks and then you divide it by two, which is your typical pay-per-view split. You're getting like 130 grand. So your total revenue for this some bitch is like 130 grand that couldn't have covered all of your talent, much less all of your production. Holy cow. The satellite truck and all the promotion that went into it. There's just no way this was a profitable pay-per-view event. I mean, you're losing Not even money. close. Your satellite, the, your satellite link alone probably ran 45 or 50 grand. That's unbelievable. And you got a production truck. Now they probably amortize, you know, they spread those costs out because they were probably taping TV in and around very seldom would TNA show up and just shoot a pay-per-view. So right. it was pay-per-view on Sunday and then TV on Monday and Tuesday and sometimes Wednesday. So they could amort the costs out over the course of three or four shows. Um, but yeah, just hard, you know, hard line item accounting, you know, one pager <laughs> you're, you, you, they probably lost, 
costs a minimum of $250,000, minimum of $250,000 to shoot that show. Plus your talent. Light up lakes and everything else. Minimum. Now throw talent on that. And the way that, you know, WCW included, we didn't, we didn't include talent in a light. Talent was a separate expense. Physical production was a different expense. You didn't amortize the talent out over individual events to try to rationalize profitability or to account for it. TNA didn't either. So your, your hard costs were probably 250. I don't know how you'd figure out your talent. I don't know what the talent budget was annually there. So I can't even take a wing at that, but did they lose a hundred, 125,000 airfare hotel? I mean, there's just, there's hotel. You add all this up insurance and catering and 200 grand. They lost boys and girls, you know, how not to run a wrestling company. (laughs) Let's talk about, uh, the big news coming out of this and man, I know this is going to be uncomfortable for you, but part of the shit is part of the story. Meltzer would write the biggest story was before the show started. There was a lot of concern when Jeff Hardy arrived from people worried about his condition. At one point it was talked about pulling him from the show, announcing that he was injured and putting the title up in a three-way with Morgan versus Anderson versus Jeff Jarrett. Anderson was actually cleared to wrestle and had his first match back the night before on an indie show in Wisconsin facing Matt Hardy. Joe would have been pulled as most likely Jarrett would have gotten the title. Uh, Hardy then said he wasn't loaded, but was suffering from exhaustion from the trip to Abu Dhabi, which included a 20 hour flight back management accepted that story. Given that the other wrestlers on the tour were all also exhausted, although none were in any danger of being pulled from the show. Hardy also did a personal appearance in Detroit the night before. One person said that Hardy was actually seen in better shape now, uh, that his baby was born. He was allowed to wrestle and didn't look any better or any worse than he did a month ago with Morgan. So we know that Hardy has had some, some substance issues. That's in fact, the reason he's here and not with WWE. And we also know, unfortunately, the worst is yet to come victory road, 2011, the following year at this point. You know, here we are in, in November of or early December, rather of 2010. What's the management perspective as far as you knew about Jeff Hardy, big star, perhaps some big problems worth the risk. Where does the concern for the performer and what's best for business? How does that all sort of come together in December of 2010 for Jeff Hardy? Got to be honest, Dixie loved Jeff Hardy. Yeah. And but by the way, let me add to that. And when I say loved, I mean, as a person, yeah, she was Dixie's a healer. Dixie's a fixer. Dixie looks, likes to look for broken people and fix them. And that's a, I wish more people had that quality. I wish I had that quality, um, as much as Dixie does. Or did. I don't know if she still does. I imagine she does. She, so as Jeff was struggling, Dixie became almost like a mother to Jeff. That was my observation. I wasn't a part of their personal conversations. Dixie didn't talk a lot about Jeff to me or or probably to anybody else. Um, 
what a mistake, right? I mean, she, but it was, the, the intention was there. Yeah. Her intentions were honorable and good. I think because of the lack of wrestling experience and just well, the lack of experience in general on Dixie's part, probably didn't realize just, she knew she was taking a risk. I don't think she knew how big a risk she was really taking, not just for Jeff, but for the people that Jeff was in the ring with, you know, and look, I've, I've, I've done overseas trips. I flew back from Doha, Qatar, about 10 months ago. I know how physically draining those trips are. Add a half a bottle of Vicodin and a fistful of Quaaludes and a quart of scotch or whatever it is you drink on top of it all. Yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be exhausted. All right. Self-inflicted, but you're going to be exhausted. I flew back 22 hours, 18, 22 hours from Doha, Qatar last February. Um, jumped in my truck, drove home and had dinner with my family in Minneapolis. It was fine. Had I drank all the way from Doha, Qatar and, and followed it up with a fistful of pills, I'm pretty sure I would have been face down on a plate of mashed potatoes and gravy. So you know, the excuse of being exhausted doesn't fly with me at least because I've been there and I've done it in a lot of different conditions, meaning long flights and, and tough travel and all that. It is draining, but no. Jeff had an issue. I'm sure Jeff would talk freely about it now. Sure. Jeff was in bad shape. Dixie, sh I want to be careful because I've made the same mistake. I'm not going to criticize her. I've made the same mistake. I've done the same thing. You know, you want, you, you think you can fix things that you can't fix. It's, uh, it's unfortunate that he had to go through all of that. And unfortunately he had to go through a lot of it in front of us. I think in hindsight, everybody involved probably would have made a different decision. Did you feel like when you watched this match back, did you even remember the circumstance around that day with Jeff Hardy and their being concerned, I guess my question is, could you tell watching the match or did it jog your memory? Like, oh yeah, I remember this day. I couldn't. And I, I didn't, I didn't flash back. Oh yeah. That's the one where he flew back from Abu Dhabi and said he was tired and exhausted, but he was really just fucked up and hung over. No. And that's the thing about addicts and, and anybody that's addicted to whatever you're addicted to drugs, alcohol, whatever is when you're really, really good at it. The people around you, you know, maybe the people really close to you can tell, but a lot of, you know, that's what functional alcoholics and functional drug addicts are. They can function just fine when they have to, no matter how fucked up they are because they've gotten to be that good at it. Case in point right here. Gil bold, uh, Boldgerg, What a name wants to know, uh, what would Eric say is the Dumbest gimmick match in TNA. Oh, Jesus. King of the Mountain. <clears throat> That's too tough. I, I, I have to give that a lot of thought. And it's hard to think about because it's like pain for me. I don't like to think about it. I don't like to remember it. I don't like to re-experience things that are unpleasant to me. So I tend to pretend they didn't happen or 
compartmentalize them in a way so that while they're up there in my brain somewhere, I have to work really hard to get at the material because I try to keep it tied, tied up in a nice little box with a, with a big lock on it. So I'd have to give that some thought. I think, I think the Monsters Ball matches, if I had to pick one, you know, like if somebody made me, I, I would say the Monsters Ball matches just yeah. <laughs> as a reminder boys and girls next week we're going to watch eric get fired on monday night raw on the 14th we're going to watch starcade 1999 of course we are uh no longer under the eric bischoff regime vince russo has the keys now and we'll see what he does with it we'll come back on the 21st with starcade 2000 the very last starcade uh, and then we'll wind up the year on Starcade 1991. That's coming your way on December 28th. That's uh, Eric's first Starcade. So his first Starcade, his last Starcade. Uh, we got a lot of fun stuff coming your way here on 83 Weeks. And don't forget, you get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. If you've got a question about the show, we would love to have your interactions. Throw us a follow over at 83 Weeks on Twitter. We should also mention, Eric, we've got uh, a lot of fun stuff happening on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can go look for us on YouTube. Just look for 83 weeks on YouTube. Click that subscribe button. There's going to be some really fun stuff coming your way that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, and you want to be some of the first to see it. Uh, so check out our YouTube channel. It's also the best way to introduce uh, some of your friends or family members who may be big wrestling fans, uh, about all the fun stuff we do here on 83 weeks right there on YouTube. Uh, we've got a very special. Uh, bonus episode planned for December. We're not going to announce it just yet for adfreeshows.com, but stay tuned. Uh, I guess maybe a week or so we'll make that announcement, but you guys are really going to dig it. Uh, we're going to love freeshows.com and hope you guys are as well. Thanks for humoring us today as we sort of rent around the world for TNA res- Final Resolution 2010. We got into the weeds on a lot of stuff Dixie Carter, Brooke Hogan, Bully Ray. You never know what you're going to get with these type of shows. It's almost like that Forrest Gump box of chocolates, right, Eric? <laughs> I, I watched that last night. I, I woke Did up you? R- really uh, early, like at 12:45 instead of 4:30, and was going through television looking for something to to watch, and I saw well, saw the last half of it anyway. So yeah, maybe that's what inspired me today. Well, we'll be back next to week talk about was- cher- to talk about cherry pie cherry pie and a lot more coming your way next week here on the show. Who knows? I may ask Eric about, Hey, what was it like on the inside of that dumpster? And he'll say, well, my relationship with liver sausage, who knows what the hell we're doing here on 83 weeks, boys and girls, <laughs> check it out next week, right here. Get it early. Get it ad free. Check out the video too. All at adfreeshows.com. He is at a Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Perhaps the best way to introduce a friend to 83 weeks is to direct them to our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Be sure to hit the subscribe button right now. It's totally free. You're going to sneak peek of upcoming shows, plus some exclusive content you can't find anywhere else. And perhaps best of all, some great new giveaways coming your way. Absolutely for free. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and be sure to check out the shirts over at ericbischoff.com. If it's been a while, we need to remind you we're adding new ones all the time. Plus there's tons of new gimmicks at boxofgimmicks.com. Like right now, we have some of Dave Silva's cover art on posters, lots of different ways to support the show and be a part of the 83 weeks community. 
It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Of course, ericbischoff.com. And who could forget boxofgimmicks.com. And hey, if you'd like to advertise your product or service here on the show and hear Eric Bischoff brag about you or your business, it's easy to make that happen. Just go to advertisewithconrad.com. Telling you, be glad to the most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. She's beautiful, classy, and she's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. She's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring and takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista is available. She's ready for love and ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one carat round, brilliant cut diamond is only 31.98. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus free shipping and 12 months interest free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only or go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista ready for love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers, real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven Singer.com. Hey, before we get out of here, I want to remind you don't put Christmas on a credit card. Instead, get rid of all that credit card debt right now, once and for all, and even skip your next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. It really is that simple. In just about 10 minutes, we're going to show you how much you can save for free. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time, but we're licensed in more than 40 states and ready to hook you up. Go check out our five-star reviews over at SaveWithConrad.com, and then get a quick quote and find out how much money you can save for free. We've helped thousands of our podcast listeners, just like you save their family, tens of thousands of dollars. 50, 60, 70, 80, even a hundred thousand bucks you could save. And it just takes about 10 minutes to get started right now at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. You know what to do. Go to savewithconrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.